So we are here to, uh, to study communal, the communal attribute of, of the five mark church. And, uh, you know, to, we're going to be covering three things, as you know. Um, the first is more of an introduction to the communal church vis-a-vis uh, -vis a, a reevaluation. You know, a lot of people have uh, turned to the New Testament in the secular context and as an ethics, sort of, you know, the New Testament ethics. And uh, Richard Hayes uh, had a huge impact for me in my whole, whole development of the missional church. And this article is a, a very good example of his writing that has had that kind of impact. And uh, so Kevin will be leading us in a discussion on that. Then we're going to be taking from the ecclesial ethic thesis, we're going to look at mercy ministry in the church. Now I know that some of you have had, I've taught that, some of the stuff, you're going to hear things that maybe some of it you've heard before, but, but I want us to have a little bit of a collaborative effect with this uh, uh, as those who are key leaders in the church. Or, or, and, and so we're going to have a time where we kind of look at the whole principle of of um, you know the ABCDs or whatever it is of, of, of mercy ministry. So we're going to do that. And then thirdly, we're going to be reading Bonhoeffer. Hopefully you had a chance to read him. And uh, Craig is going to be leading that discussion on the whole issue of uh, accountability, I guess is what we, what did we call it? Uh, community confession. Community confession and repentance or something like that. And so this is a, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer, it's a little bit... Uh, you know, it's a little bit idealistic insofar as he's writing in the context of a communal environment. But, but at the same time, we thought that it would be very helpful uh, to just engage, I think especially for us as potential WLB session member type people, that, um, you know, that, that it, it, the, grace, the grace of rebuke, the grace of getting in people's lives and, and doing and initiating uncomfortable issues with people. Uh, that's, there's a lot of uh, power in... in a community that loves one another enough to really believe in the full orb of the use of Scripture, which is for correction and reproof, etc. And um, and I know in my own ministry, you know, it's the things that that I think I know, and I say this as an anecdotal thing, but I think a lot of people are afraid of me because they know I will speak truth to them, and I sense that a lot, you know. But at the same time, I know a lot of people have said, and I'm saying this for any, and I would say this is true for Craig and Kevin and any of us. That, that we've experienced the most profound transformation in people's lives. When I look over the ministry and I see the way God has used that topic, that, that, you know, being willing to get into someone and say, you know, I think this is a problem, and to speak it. And you get a reaction, of course. And it's 50-50, you know, whether it's positive or whether they bag your head off. But, but the end result is powerful. So I hope that the Bonhoeffer read will help you think about that and, and what it means to love one another. To really be a leader and to lead from the, you know, to, you know, one of the signs of a leader is when you see a sheep, you know, when you see a wolf coming in the back door, you don't wait for him to come into the house. You go out there and get it. And, uh, you know, you, you attack the wolves. You don't let the wolves attack your people. And that can come in the form of theology. That can come in the form of all sorts of forms. And the tendency uh, is, is to want to lead from behind, wait for it all to come at us. And then react to it. But this is a great, I don't know, I can't wait to hear this, this conversation. But, so that's what's in store for us today. And uh, I wanted to, but before we do that, I wanted to at least mention that, okay, so we have one more formal uh, meeting together. That'll be next month, uh, uh, the same Saturday. I don't think we changed that. We've been changing so many things. I don't know what we changed. I think it's, it's, it's that, and I apologize for this week being changed. 
Uh, we changed it actually a while back and put it on the calendar, and so if you really look at the calendar, you would notice it. But I do want to say, you know, give you my apologies that we did not uh, advertise that early enough. You just got that advertisement this week, so please forgive us for that. Um, obviously, we did it in a way to accommodate the uh, work the work party. We just felt like it was easier to get this many people. Um, you know, reorganize them to get the whole church reorganized. So that's why we did it. Um, so thank you for your grace on that. So the following week is going to be called the Missional Church. And uh, we were just doing a little powwow. So we're going to be hitting on some issues there that affect the Missional Church. We will look at some issues related to, to uh, just how we define the church differently. When we call it a Missional Church, by now you should know what we mean by that. It's not just the church that does missions. It's the church that sees itself by its very nature as missional. So we'll look at some things like that. What you know, to really, I think it's a big issue in our church um, uh, to think about us like that. And so we're going to give you some readings about that. We're going to give you some readings. Then we're going to look at how we, as a missional church, engage culture a little bit more. We've already talked about it in some other contexts, but we're going to look at that. And particularly, I'm going to take as a case study. Some of you remember, and again, this is something for us to do collaboratively. We're going to take the issue of sexuality, at least it's one of the issues. Uh, I'll probably utilize that little paper I threw out to you guys. Um, on the uh, Supreme Court thing, and how do we approach that thing? Uh, how do we approach our culture, and what's, what's, what does a missional church do with an issue like that? You're going to have a very real choice. You know, are we going to be, are, is our first goal cultural transformation and creating a Christian America? Or is our first goal kingdom, you know, kingdom building and creating disciples of Christ and, and seeing the gospel uh, into people's lives? And what comes first? Uh, and how does it relate to us acting jointly versus separately? Those are the kind of questions we'll ask there. Uh, there's one more topic. What was it, guys? Yes, we're going to engage the whole issue of racial reconciliation issue a little bit more. And how does the church relate to that issue? So with that, um, why don't we begin in prayer? Then I'm going to turn it over to Kevin. And we're going to get any questions, though, about the housekeeping events. I want to do it right at the beginning because it seems like at the end we always forget. Any uh, housekeeping what I would say is uh, we ought to have a little party. I mean, we, we need to do something to kind of celebrate this. I don't know what y'all think, but, um, I mean, would y'all be interested in having a lunch together at the end of this last, next time? Be honest with me. I mean, if it's kind of cramping your style, I understand. You guys are busy. Well, why don't we, why don't we, you, you want to do that? We could eat, so we might do something. We might get a little catered meal in here or something, and um, and and we'll we'll just have a little celebration. You, you guys have persevered, and um, it's been a you know two year gig off and on, of course. And so um, I'm really proud of you guys for being able to hang in there. So let's let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for the, just your your presence and your your love for your church, and we know that it's your love, it's your presence. If there's anything at all good, if there's anything good about us as a church, we know it's derived from you. It doesn't come from within, it comes from without as a gift. And we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and his presence by the Holy Spirit. And all of what we talk about in this class is really comes right down to that, wanting, wanting to have Christ in the midst of us. And wanting to, to be, in the mediatorial sense, the body of Christ. And so, Lord, come as... And prepare us to do that better and uh, meet with us as we have these conversations today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so I've got a small 
um, guide. It's not really much of a handout, but it's it's um, really just to help us have the questions that I want to ask in front of us. Um, so I only have one more copy, so if somebody else comes in, uh, I got one more and then we can share. Oh, do you need? Sorry. Yeah. Are they online? Uh, I will put them online, but I don't have them online yet. Um, and like, so this is, um, this is an article that uh, was written by Richard Hayes. Uh, Hayes was the guy that I uh, went to Duke to study under, um, was the guy I did my, um, my thesis with, and um, just really respect him not only as an a, a exegete of scripture, but also as a churchman. I mean, he's, he was really devoted, you know, Methodist church, and many times in our office he would, he would rail against the Methodist church. He actually liked the PCA. He didn't like everything the PCA believed, but he liked the PCA. And uh, would talk about how some of the things that, that we do um, are really uh, the way it should be done compared to, to what he was wrestling with. So all that um, puts it in the context of somebody who is probably not in our camp, um, but somebody who's hitting on themes that are really um, central to, to, I think, what we believe. Um, and this paper, it's interesting because there's a lot of different angles uh, you, could, you could take this uh, in, but he, he focuses on this idea of ethics, um, which for many people in... Uh, academia is equivalent to theology. Um, it's, it's what matters. It's, it is actually uh, boiling it down to it. But he takes it in a very radically different way than is normally talked about. Um, so I'll just open with a question. When you hear about Christian ethics, what do you think about? What, what are some typical things that you'd expect getting discussed? Moral, moral commands, ethics. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay. So big concepts and topics and some that might deal with um, particular issues that uh, we'd, have to do, we'd have to sort through that are, are very complicated in, in sciences and, and medicine. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like uh, ministry to the poor. Okay, yeah. Ministry to the poor. Ethics might, might mean in some contexts... Like in a social, sort of social, like a Christian social lens. Yeah. What's the right thing to do for? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm just seeing a lot of a lot of um, what's wrong, what's right, kind of discussions back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the gray area? Is right. The gray area? Yeah. Yeah. How do we how do we determine right and wrong, good and bad? Yeah. Uh, I think for many people, it's. It's uh, it is the Christian life. They think about what am I supposed to be doing? What are the things that, what are the commands in Scripture that I need to follow? Um, oftentimes, that can lead to legalism and and away from the gospel. But it, it often is the way we sort of think about. Okay, just just give me what I need, um, or um, maybe what should be a standard for all people. Um, so I, I want to just you know raise the question, to what purpose do we obey? I mean, what's the reason for it? If, even if you think about um, the medical things, or the, the social aspects with, with poverty, questions of right and wrong, what, is there something behind that? What's behind it? I mean, other than, you know, God. What, what's behind it? 
what would what would determine what is a right decision to make or a wrong decision to make? I think a lot of it is interpersonal relationships. Okay. What, what do you mean by that? Trust, uh, uh, things of things of that nature. So ethics. Um, Ethics is work to, to building better relationships. Is I think that it's, I think it's, it's, it's standards, mm -hmm. uh, but but I think that's one of the things that it accomplishes. Okay, all right. So one of the goals, yeah. Right. Um, value um, every individual Okay, all right. So su supporting some fundamental theological claims about humanity. Yeah. I don't think this is where the direction the conversation is going, but I think um, uh, I might have thought that it was just like, what did Jesus do, and we should do the same thing. Right. Okay. But, and and I think behind that is why, why why do the same thing as Jesus? Right. Should, I mean, Jesus has been set up as this model. Okay. And so Christian ethics yeah. is doing is living life like Jesus lived. Yeah. Life. Okay. So just yeah. like let's like figure out. What he did, and right. how can we replicate that now? Right. Which would turn your faith and your religion into um, an example of Jesus' religion. Yeah. Uh, I was just having a conversation with somebody who was talking about Jesus' religion, the thing that he followed, and that he was the, the exemplar of what we should, we should imitate. Um, so I want to get into all of that stuff, but I think... Uh, Hayes is going to come out with a different motive, uh, one that lies behind the ethical instruction and commands that Paul gives throughout his letters. And he focuses on Paul um, specifically, uh, most as a test case, but he actually has a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament, which draws together all the New Testament authors and saying that there is this vision that um, uh, that is in their mind as they pull together the, the ethical commands. So if you want a fuller version, that's a, that's a, a book that you might be interested in. Um, he, reading, reading Paul, if you just take it um, looking for his ethic, seems often like sorting through someone else's mail. It seems like he's responding ad hoc to pastoral problems as they arise in the churches uh, that he's, he has a relationship with. And we might prefer, especially given how we've talked about ethics, that Paul just wrote a manual. Tell us what to do. Um, tell us how, um, you know, what, what is it that, that we're supposed to be uh, following, what's right and what's wrong. But what informs the nature of his, his instruction? Is it solely divine revelation? Is he just saying, okay, God's given me these commandments uh, when I was praying, and now I'm going to give them to you. Um, is it common sense? Is he saying, guys, you know, come on, I'm pretty wise, I'm, you know, I've been around the block, let me just tell you how social relations should be here as sorting out some of your problems. Uh, or worse, is it just personal preference? Is he just saying that, you know what, um, this is the type of church you guys should be because that's the kind of church that I think is right. Um, you know, have you ever thought about the motive from, uh, well, what Paul, Paul's trying to do with this? Well, uh, well, Hayes is, is uh, making the case throughout this article that ethics provides a window into Paul's understanding of the type of community that God's people are called to be. He says here in this quote, 
It will be my contention that Pauline ethics is fundamentally ecclesial. That's related to the church, has a churchly character. Fundamentally ecclesial in character. And that we begin to grasp his moral vision only when we understand that he sees the church as inheriting the corporate vocation of God's covenant people, Israel. Um, Hayes makes the point that his exhortations are aimed at defining and maintaining a corporate identity for his young churches, which are emphatically countercultural communities. Um, and I think we, we've certainly seen lots of examples of countercultural communities, um, but he's not simply trying to be countercultural. To state it positively, he says, God is at work through the Spirit to create communities that prefigure and embody the reconciliation and healing of the world. Such communities are palpable signs of God's reconciliation of the world. What's he saying there? What's what's his basic point about? I thought it was so powerful in the article just how Mm. Paul just regular stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet, and how he succinctly said the point Mm -hmm. is is to um, reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I thought that just yeah. Under and what's the point of reconciliation? Reconciliation um, to God through Christ in the body and individually. Right, right. But and and not only, but not only the reconciliation as an end. Not only not only saying that you know what is let's why don't we just all get along as right. Rodney King has once said. Um, what's not only is it trying to make happy communities, but what's What's behind that motive? And you're, you're hit on it in what you said. Yeah, to share the gospel, but how to share the gospel. It's not, not necessarily verbal, but that the community itself starts taking on the character of the gospel. It starts to form the, this, um, so that as a community, we start embodying the very reconciliation that God has at work in the world. Um, so that's what he's, he has in mind here when he says that um, the, the vocation of the community is to become the righteousness of God, to embody God's righteousness. Now he's quoting First, uh, Second Corinthians five at that point, um, but that's a radical idea. That not only are we not only are we speaking the gospel, but we embody it and embody it differently than than uh, St. Francis of Assisi has said. Remember, uh, if you have ever heard the quote, um, St. Francis says, you know, not only, you know, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. Have you ever heard that quote? Now, he's using it in times of being kind and nice to others, and an individual can certainly do that, and often individuals take that. But that's something that cannot happen in the way he's talking about it here because it fundamentally needs a community. Because the body of Christ is what what Jesus has formed in order to to be His presence and to enact um, this God's reconciling love. Um, so, what does it mean for your community, not just you as an individual? What does it mean for your community to have a vocation to this vocation in particular? What are the implications of having this this vocation? Is, that, is it clear what the vocation is? But it's embodying the gospel, embodying the righteousness of Christ. What, how does that look in the church? You have, to, you have to be mindful of, 
it's not you're not making dis- decisions um, individually or yeah. collectively about what, what's good for the body. And right. You have to think about the the ways that your personal decisions interact with everybody else and how how to right. coordinate that. Right. And as, as well as that, how does it glorify Christ? Yeah. 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 That there's a motive in that that thinking, but they work together. Yeah. Yeah. And you're fulfilling the vocation when the whole community is participating in the vocation. Yeah. If it's the community's vocation, the community is only doing it when the whole. So what's what's an implication of that? That that it's important to find ways for every individual member of the community to be a part of the community by participating in the vocation. How can you participate in the vocation is not just like, how can we get things done? It's how can you fulfill this mission? Yeah, and so if you see somebody who is uh, going the wrong way, it's not just a matter of you keeping yourself straight or you worrying about how much you're doing good in God's eyes, but you actually have an investment in how that person's doing. There's a there's a, a synergy in all all the uh, the community, like because you're all functioning together, and that's and that's a sign of the gospel not only at work in your life, but also what God has been doing and his in his his community formation, his his desire to design this. Um, other implications. Anything else? I think it's radical. I think it's. Um it goes against everything that we're encouraged yeah. out in the world. Yeah. So it's not going to be easy. Right. Right. And it will and it will rub against some of your um, instincts, your gut reactions, because you've been trained otherwise. Oh, I'm fine on my own. I'm doing okay. Um, but it's causing you to, you know, we are a very individualistic culture, um, and it's rubbing against that. It's rubbing against. That how that mentality has affected other people to say, okay, people have walls that, you know, there's going to have to be some um, transcending of that, getting messy. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, explain for those who weren't here. Oh, so so there was a lot of reconciliation. Just sometimes it's like, well, it's all, I don't have to deal with this. Yeah. And and it's like, no, he's my brother. I have to. Right. We have to figure this out. Right. And then the, and then the church is able to help people figure out that it was better than yeah. before. But it's not easy. Yeah. And what happens when that doesn't happen? Not only do you lose a brother, but um, but the gospel starts to deteriorate in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. And our witness starts to deteriorate. I mean, just think about how caustic that is to the very thing we're starting to proclaim um, and, and live out ourselves. Um, with this, this vocation in place Hayes notes the ethical implications of a community that must embody the gospel and we can agree or disagree on how he states some of these things he listed off five, I'll try to summarize them I don't think I did a great job of it but first he says it means that no distinction should be based on worldly categories of wealth, power, social status he's quoting um, Galatians 3.28 there as he's, as he's uh, Paul saying um, in Christ, there is, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male and, and female. Um, that that idea of blowing up the everything else that divides us should not divide us within the, the family of God. 
Um, and the, the, the community is defined by faith in Christ. Um, so there is a definition. There is, is, there is something that makes us an identity, but it's not based on those other things. Thirdly, the primary addressee of moral commands is not the individual, but the church. Um, again, that will change radically how you read scripture. Um, it is one of the unfortunate things that you probably heard preachers say from time to time uh, that most English translations uh, need a southern rendering, right? I mean, you need the, the plural second person um, so that you can say y'all rather than you. Um, because when we, we hear or read you, we have automatically categorized that as singular. And so often, not all the time, but so often, Paul uses the you as a plural. And when that is in place, that really changes your reading of it. Um, fourthly, he appeals to the presence of the Spirit operative in them rather than the letter of the law. And he, he many times when Paul is trying to contrast the, the characteristic of Israel here, and he wants to show a lot of continuity, but what he wants to say is fundamentally different, is the Spirit is within our community. It, 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 le- it, it lives here, and so the, the compulsion is not just out of regulation, but it, the compulsion comes from a new heart. We are transformed. Regeneration has happened, and the Holy Spirit's at work in our lives. Um, fifthly, uh, the church's identity is to be found in continuity with Israel. So we read that corporate identity and, and, um, and see our vocation coming out of the vocation purpose that he has there through Christ. It's very interesting. Um, he's got, Pace uh, has a book called The Echoes of Scripture and the Letters of Paul. And, and one of the points he makes in there is as Paul quotes the Old Testament, um, he does something different than what the Gospels do. When the Gospels quote the Old Testament, they see Israel as Christ. But when Paul quotes it, they see Israel as the church. He sees Israel as the church. And those two things aren't contradictory because our identity in Israel has to go through Christ. And Christ is the true Israel. He's the embodiment. He's the fulfillment of it. And, and so uh, both of those things can work together in a way that um, when we read Scripture, we get to make that transition, understanding the fulfillment in Christ, but also then are enabled to see uh, our, our identity in, connect, in connection with Israel. Um, all right, and then he goes through, which is probably the, the bulk of the essay on, um, on 1 Corinthians as a test case. The Corinthians have understood the gospel in terms of individual spiritual fulfillment. This misunderstanding has led them to rivalry and fragmentation of the community um, there are different factions. One says, I am of Apollo, I am of Paul, uh, I am of Cephas, and one even saying, I am of Christ, as the trump card. You know? um, but that's all creating divisions. And Paul, um, throughout that whole letter, where there's so many commands he's giving, has this, if you read it from the lens that Hayes is, is uh, arguing for, it all sorts of really fit together that he is trying to form a community that's based in Christ. Um, this quote here, I think, is, um, is really profound. The community is the place where God dwells. Do you not know, he asked, that you are, that you, plural, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural. To read that last sentence as though it spoke of the spirit dwelling in the body of the individual Christian would miss the force of Paul's audacious metaphor. The a- apostolic 
apostolically founded community takes the place of the Jerusalem temple as the place where the glory of God resides. And the really audacious part of that is that the temple is still standing when Paul's saying that. I mean, that's, that, is pretty, that is pretty radical stuff for a guy who grew up and you know, found his identity as a, as a faithful Jew to say, you are God's temple. Um, and, and he's speaking about the church as, as the presence of God. Um, and I, I just highlight some other uh, passages that he um, draws out from First Corinthians, the conversation about idol meat. Paul does not uh, seek to settle a disagreement among the Corinthians by simply issuing the ruling. I mean, if you listen to how he's arguing there, he's not saying, all right, let me give you the, the lowdown on what idol meat is and what we should do about it and what we shouldn't do about it. Um, that would make him really irrelevant to us in this letter, not, you know, 2,000 years removed from that discussion. Um, but it would also, um, wouldn't give them the, the real benefit of seeing what he's doing, what God has been doing in their community. The alternative is a way of life that uh, surrenders freedom and prerogatives for the spiritual welfare of others. You think about this. In regular society, you have certain rights, certain prerogatives. You have things that you can say, this is, by everybody's account, it's right of me to to feel this way and to do this way. (laughs) And he's saying, now within the community, you have to start challenging those. Um, and, and start to lay those down because that's what the gospel is doing in your life. The ethical norm that is not given in the form of a predetermined rule or set of rules of conduct. Rather, the right action must be discerned on the basis of a Christological paradigm with a view to the need of the community and the community's identity as God's covenant people. If Christ is our paradigm, uh, our expectation should not be uh, prosperity. <laughs> it should be a cruciform. It should be shaped by the cross and, and our understanding of giving, um, of reconciling giving with others. Not, not as a way to substitute Christ, not, not accomplishing it separate from him, but in a sacramental way, sort of um, Christ working through us um, as he's designed. Moves on to the discussion of discipline. This is a person caught in what seems to be an incestuous relationship in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, drive out the evil person among you. Why is he saying this? Why not just, you know, leave leave the person alone and worry about yourself? uh, He makes the point he's motivated by a concern for the unitary holiness of the community. Do you care if somebody else is struggling with a deep sin? Well, you might care about the particular person, but do you care what major effect that has um, to the holiness of the church? That, that's that's going to be a um, that's going to lead you if if you you know enter into the session or WLB or or just even being a a, a Christian leader in the church to say, all right, I mean, just exactly what President said, this is going to be an ugly, hard conversation, and it's going to, it may not go well with me. I mean, it may have a lot of blowback, but not doing that um, starts to deteriorate the gospel and the gospel of my own heart and, and the life of the body. Diversity of gifts. You know, First Corinthians is known for this, um, you know, this one section on the spiritual gifts. And we would love Paul to come out with a manual 
on, okay, so tell us squarely what the heck is tongues and what is this prophecy and you know, tell us all this stuff. Paul says the more important thing is what, you know, what, how are these gifts working for the common good of the community? And that, that is the, um, that's the modus behind what he's, um, what he's getting at here. All right, so um, I hope that was a uh, was kind of a quick summary of it, but I hope it's getting to the heart of what um, what Hayes is after here. And I think really important as we, we start getting into this topic of, of community and communal um, understanding of, uh, of what it means to be the church. I just have a few reflecting, reflection questions um, that I want to end on. Uh, and we can do this as a group, I think. How does this uh, vision of community transformation, uh, or how does this vision of community transform the way we disciple and care for God's flock? Um, we touched on this, obviously, but just think about this. Um, specifically, discipleship and, and care. What are, some, what are some of the things that are gonna, sh- should be characteristics of the way we do this as a church? I think both of those things. Okay. But yeah, just as we think about that. So yeah. in discipling and caring, um, just helping a person think through, like what Steve was saying, how does this affect the whole community, yeah. not just you? When, and lots of questions, you know, changing jobs. Right. Um, maybe pulling out of service due to other commitments that seem more important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think following Paul's example in First Corinthians, one commentator in a paper that I wrote, I was studying one of the Corinthian books, and the way that he was able to put it really, was really helpful to me. That Paul is not concerned with what you know, telling the Corinthians what to do mm. and what to think, but teaching them how to think as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is also the way that we disciple and care for yeah. people in our church. We don't just tell them, here's what you think. We try to walk them through making the decision themselves so that they can start thinking as a Christian. Right. And that, that doing that will help us not just teach people our culture with a little bit of our theology wrapped in it and um, but it also helped them to hear it as, oh, he's not just giving his preference, or she's not just telling us the way she does it, but is saying, okay, there's there's a a godly thing behind this that that has a reason. Um, yeah. The whole thing with Brad and Evelyn when they started coming here, they weren't married yet. And right. Yeah. It just made me so happy that it's like, oh, just relax and and, and uh, it just you know, of course it's fine, but then yet. Yeah, how that whole thing worked itself out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, so I can't remember if it was, uh, I thought it was one of the books of the Corinthians um, where you see the metaphor of the body and um, sexual sin mm-hmm. and where a, a member of the body was, was caught yeah. some sexual sin mm-hmm. and so therefore the whole body. Right, yeah, First Corinthians 7, section. yeah. And, 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 and in this... Um, thinking about it this way, the way we disciple, it's as if we are rescuing our own body mm. from 
from this disaster. Yeah. It's not just that person. It's it's me. It's us. Yeah. I was in a church. Um, yeah. Leave it leave it as vague as possible. I was in a church where one of the um, one of the children of the leadership, uh, one of the leaders' children, um, had uh, had gotten pregnant out of wedlock, and um, it was very clear because I was in some of those discussions. There was nothing being done at all, and it was supportive in a way that was supportive, but there was this thing in the air that was like. Well, Okay, are we, you know, is this, does it, is there any sort of, um, and I, I don't, you know, typically I would say, yes, you don't know what's going on behind the, the scenes in that, but there's also a, a sense in which there, there, be, there can become a, a shadow over some of these things that, um, uh, that start to affect the whole community. Um, it's definitely going to become known. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the disciple in here for, for God's people, and like, um, I guess I was thinking through the conversation that without Christ, it can become very cultish. And to somebody who's maybe on the fringe or is not sure if they want to become a Christian, I think like talking a lot about community. I, I just I, I actually felt this like personally, like when I was kind of getting more involved in church, it was like. Maybe I want to be partially involved in this community because everyone is talking about the community so much that, like, when is the community? It's just, it could just be a little overwhelming in a weird way. And, and, um, and, and the Christ, that obviously Christ, the power of Christ, God, is, is what makes that up. But I, I think that on an individual level, I think that, um, that this, that when the community is flourishing, it's because it, it's also, there's individual flourishing. You know, God is working his purposes in the and it just it just struck it just struck me as like um, an important reminder to that might be a person's struggle, right. you know, that, the, right. that 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 might be a question or a concern. And I think sensitivity towards that, though, was a reminder that hey, you know, the the church's power and authority is limited by it being um, ministerial and spiritual, and cults tend to transcend that and get into the you know you need to do this, and you know it's. It, yeah. Controlling of the money and all and, and lies, but this is this is really pointing to, um, uh, especially for members, as as we instruct them as they come into membership, the vows you take and and the relationship that you form. There's a family identity that that happens here that is healthy, um, however difficult it is. Um, so, what are some of the threats to this vision of community that might not be apparent? Or that concerning if we take an individualist approach to ethics. If we just think about ethics on individualistic terms, what are some of the threats um, that we might miss?
is predominant versus what does the entire body need? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, blind, blind to the needs of the whole body. Yeah. Um, sometimes we can hear somebody taking a little dig or, or doing, you know, working towards... So we, we have this, this vow that we take in membership of promoting the ed- peace and edification of the church. That's not just saying, okay, I promise that I am not going to destroy the church, but it's also making sure that if I hear that in others, that um, they realize that's going to have a detrimental effect. Yeah. I mean, my first reaction to your question was, gosh, you have, you know, there's thousands. Yeah, right? sure. We really ought to think about the fact that there really are, but, you know, again, after watching the movie yesterday and spot, it is amazing to me how one threat would be, and I think this is something we're having to deal with right here, is the bias is always for the individual against the, the, the whole. Mm-hmm. There's something about our culture, whether it's even from the Enlightenment, from the Revolutionary War, you know, this idea that individuals get oppressed and communities oppress, mm-hmm. if, you, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And the fact Paul just turns that right upside down. I mean, he's really saying, no. I mean, you know, that, that so I think one threat to this whole ethic is, that, I mean, and it can come in the form of weaknesses, not, not wickedness. It's like, like an individual who is hurting, who is weak, who is broken. And the way in which that individual, out of their pain, can interpret the life of the community, or the actions of a session, or the actions of a pastor or a leader. And there's something about our culture that always assumes that those who have power communally are abusive. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's it's even entered into our family. You think about it, in our culture... If, if anything happens bad to a family member, there's just, it's become this sort of a, I'm, I'm nervous, I don't mean that we should be naive, but I'm nervous that it always, that the first sort of reaction is to distrust the parent, or to distrust, you know, the, the, the caretaker, whatever it is. So I, I do think that's one of the threats that we need to, I mean, this, there's a real, I know this is fairly abstract, but I think what Paul is doing here is questioning a pretty, Assume, a, a pretty significant assumed assumption that that somehow individuals are more pure and community organizations or whatever are more corrupt. Yeah. And you know, honestly, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, the scripture will teach you that that generally it's probably the opposite. That families are generally, you know, very very good. And, you know, if there is a problem child, it may not be because they're being abused. Uh-huh. But that it's a, it's a problem, you know, there's a struggle, and the whole family network needs to be supported as they do that. So that's just yeah. one example yeah. of wickedness, I think. That, or, or, but it comes with from weak, weaknesses. I've seen even here that, you know, there may be something going on in the life of, of an individual member or person in this church, and there's, you know, there becomes a bit of a something's going on here, and weakness will tend to assume that what they're hearing from the weak person is, is the truth. Yeah. When If they only knew what was happening, really. Um, and I had a conversation about that recently, you know, and, and a person, and just, you know, 
there's another side to this. And mm-hmm. you, you really do you trust your session? Do you mm-hmm. trust your church mm-hmm. as a community to, to try to act communally yeah. and not you know just with that one issue in mind? So yeah. that, that's an example. Yeah, no, I think that's a good example. And it, as I'm hearing you talk, I think there's, it's also not just in individuals, but it can also be in small groups. Um, you think about how small groups relate to the larger needs of the church and how often yeah. the small groups want to just care for, okay, we, we want this and we need this. Um, but, okay, well, how does that relate to the, to the, to the larger group? And, um, you know, whether it's discipleship groups or, so, you know, this, you know, you know, factions can start coming because we think about uh, particular needs, and it, it gets a little bit more justified when it multiplies beyond just one. It kind of goes back just to weave that back to something you said. That, that the fact of the matter is, the the health of an individual is directly tied to the health of the community. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you have a dysfunctional family, everyone in that family individually is detrimentally affected. Mm-hmm. Which is why, and a good counseling, a good counselor will know that if you have a situation relative to an individual, say a, a, a child who's struggling with a drug addiction, you've got to do whatever you do here. You can't do it in a way that loses the family, yeah. that loses the system as a whole, because it's that very system. But that's what a codependency relationship always does. It, 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 you, everyone loses as they attempt to fix the problem of the. Of the the addict, right. right? But you lose. But what? But what happens eventually is the other children. The marriage blows up. The children's relationship to parents blow up. And if all that starts to happen, what what's happened to that individual addict? Mm-hmm. He or she just lost the most important thing that they had going for, mm-hmm. which is a functioning family. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the church. You know, and kind of to your point that you could save a small group or you could save an individual or you could try to so much focus will be focused on this poor person who's suffering or whatever that you could end up losing the whole organization mm-hmm. because you know everyone's losing in order to isolate this codependent relationship with this one group or, or, or whatever mm-hmm. so it, it's a tension yeah. but you can never lose I think the ethic here Paul is what's best for the community I mean, it's back to the old JFK statement, you know, that we will flourish as a country to the degree that America flourishes. And individualism can't rob us of that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Cody? I I think that when we lose that idea of the community and start thinking individualistically, what we end up doing is looking inward rather than looking outward. And... um, specifically in the example of the body that Paul uses, both times where he uses the body is the you plural. Mm-hmm. And so there's a tendency, I think, for uh, uh, for individual Christians when they're reading that as me, I'm the body, to start thinking about only them and their behavior, not the corporate yeah. behavior. So you get things like, oh, you shouldn't get tattoos because you're the body. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, or you shouldn't do this where I think it's a much richer appeal that Paul's making is you shouldn't, you know, commit sexual immorality because you're part of the communal body of Christ. And it just makes us think about the effect that we have on one another rather than only thinking about the effect that our sins has on ourselves. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And um, I hadn't made the connection with tattoos before, so I, I agree with that. Get, how dare somebody get tattoos? That's my body. You're, you know. <laughs> no, no. I, I, th- I think I think I think what um. That's well said. I think there uh, it's too easy as the one coming in to um, uh, to speak truth into somebody's life to miss that the heart of that and the, the, the idea that Paul wants us to all to see. So um, really. Um, I can't. That's where abuse comes in. That's exactly where abuse comes in of this idea. This is not to be done as a as a bullying sort of play. Um, yeah, it's an important aspect of the witness of the church. That's the love we have for one another, right? Yeah. Start approaching things individualistically, it seems like you can lose sight of that. Yes. Thank you for the segue. That's great. This is uh, that's the that that uh, witness is the is the last question. Uh, what effect does this community formation have on the city around us? How is it missional? And I, maybe this is a little too leading, but I wanted to at least contrast it with the classic city on the hill. Obviously, Jesus uses the city on the hill language, but I think it's often been taken um, as, a, as a vision of a type of community where we're the, we have the model of exemplary behavior to the rest of the, hey, look at how good we are, a type of way. But how, how is it what, he's, what Paul's speaking about here and what Hayes is fleshing out a witness to our city? Right here on her collar. So I'm not in her sleeve. 
yeah, rather than being this oppressive, like, okay, they all they all have their act together, they're all cleaned up, and I could, you know, it's intimidating. It's this, um, it's characterized by by redemptive love. It has the gospel all through it. We actually love each other, even if we're very very different from each other. All the, you know, as, as he says that alluding to the Galatians passage, we're not divided up based on all these other things that the world divides up. And that's a weird thing in this community. And we have a level of vulnerability. You know, I remember talking about this on campus with, you know, there's no community, as students were telling me, there's no community where people all can let their guard down, even though they all struggle with the similar issues. And if one person would just let their guard down, they would all be able to... Uh, you know, to reconcile some of the some of the things they're struggling with, how the church really needs to be like that, where it's doing something very different that they're not seeing in other places. Um, and so I think that's a um, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. To, to use a, a recent popular quote, you know, we need to be in the business of building bridges rather than walls. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's like bridges of hope, whatever. But you know. Walls of hope. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the same. Doesn't work the same. Way. <laughs> but you know, that's 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 more missional. That's not okay. We've walled ourselves up, yeah, so that we can be this thing. You know? yeah. yeah, Peggy. Yeah, I think that idea of love always protects, love rejoices, and not on doing anything. As we talk about the body of Christ and each other, the fact that we never throw anybody under the bus. And, and, I, and I think just as important as that, but also when we experience divisiveness, that we do seek to say, yeah, I, I, you know, I am sinned in that. And my, it doesn't, you know, my, my reaction isn't to double down on, on my anger or my fight, but to, to repent and, and work towards reconciliation. Uh, so I'll, I'll end right on that. Um, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for um, the discussion we've had, and please continue to bless our morning. In Christ's name, amen. I was thinking of what a perfect segue into what we're about to do. Uh, you know, one of the tensions about the city on the hill and, and this idea coupled with having a communal ethic is much of what the world, much of what Hayes was talking about is is assuming that the church is multiracial and that the church is multi-class, uh, as in socioeconomics. You know, in other words, there's a. I don't know if you're sensing the tension. Maybe I see it because of my my position here. But the tension on the one hand is that when we speak of mercy ministry, who's the who would be the target? Who's the focus of mercy? in an ecclesial ethic mentality. Who are we focusing on? Who are the recipients? Those in the ecclesia. Those in the ecclesia. It's really meant to be a family ethic. It's, it's, It's the church, qua church, and taking care of one another in the body of Christ. And you see that in various ways in the in the New Testament. How do you see evidence of that in the New Testament? 
Where would you point to and say, wow, that's an example of the church taking care of each other and loving each other. And while the church is open to the whole world, while the church is is defined in a way that we just heard uh, it defined in Galatians, uh, no respecter of persons kind of a church, um, at the same time, the church does respect insiders and outsiders. Now, that's going to bother some people to say that. But it does. It talks about everywhere you go, when it starts talking about mercy, it makes the emphasis, especially, I'm quoting it, especially the household of God. Especially the household of God. Even even the point of, of that you are a reprobate, or what, there's a big word that he uses there, I can't remember Timothy, but, but you, you, you are a reprobate, you are, you are worse than an infidel. I think that's the word, or something like that. When you don't take care of your own family member, he's talking about the church which neglects itself and the community and the body of Christ in preference for those outside of the church. Um, even the language of the stranger, showing hospitality to the stranger, if you look at that, the word, and I do this in the context of, of our uh, Christ and culture thing, but the word itself, really, well, we'll see that later on, is related to the church. And so... Um, What's the tension? Where, where do we? For, no, I'll go back to the original. Where do you see evidence of the church taking care of itself in Scripture? Yeah. In Acts, it talks about the people holding all things in common. And okay. Does it mean people in the church would be perpetually selling their possessions in order to help others? So there's a radical, radical communal. Uh, vision for us in chapter 2 of Acts, right? And you certainly see that. This 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 church is coming together, multiracial, etc. But they are there assembling together. But that would be, it feels to me like a kind of local expression of that happening. That, that, that was all happening in a geographically you know, focused area as related to the people who in the nations who come in and join that area. But, okay, so that's one good example. That's a good example. What I'd call local kind of an expression. Is there another expression of that? Yeah. Paul talking about like raising money from certain yeah. churches to support others that were in yeah. the city here. That's a great example. Corinthians 8. And and this amazing, you know, it, it was I mean for Paul to say, think about this, for Paul to say this is this was one of his highest purposes. I mean this was not something he was doing on the side. This was the purpose of his, his of his coming to churches to get money for Jerusalem. And the collection that he was taking for, for Jerusalem was a was considered a, a major program, if you will, of his ministry. And so you have the concentric circle being worked here in these two illustrations. So, you know, there's a local aspect of defining church, and we see that in Acts 2, but there's also a more global aspect of defining church that we see in Acts chapter 8, I mean, 1 Corinthians 8. So, so think about the tension that we're articulating here. On the one hand... Um, we see the tension is that the church must be uh, directing its mercy and directing its ministry and taking care of the household of God. So, because the, the vision that we have is is interesting that that on the one hand we know that there is a holistic ministry in the church. So, so if you think of the church as only being about word. Well, this passage that I list here, some of you are familiar, I, I changed my, my plan a little bit today based on that conversation to start with something I was going to end with. And 
those of you in the Servant Leaderboard have already seen this little presentation, but it's kind of nice, it's a nice little concrete expression of how we're trying to do mercy in a way that's in this concentric circle way, and we call it the Impact Week. Now, Impact Week is just a, a week. It certainly doesn't, we, if we're successful in Impact Week, we do nothing else all year, then we're a failure. So it's not meant to suggest that Impact Week is, we do that, we're all good. It's just meant to be, but Impact Week was very intentional. I think a lot of our churches lost this because sometimes I forget that even though if I presented something five years ago, that no one's here that was there five years ago. <laughs> or at least some people are, but not many. So, you know, it's just, it's probably one of those laborious aspects of the church. You just got to keep teaching this stuff over and over and over. But some of you may remember this was the vision of Impact Week. It was taken from Acts 2. Where could we try to assimilate that one week where we really do? Give, bring all things in common. Our time, which is maybe more precious than our money, and that's why time needs to be more focused on this year when we start pushing. Now we really talk about your time here. You know, don't just write a check and put it in the collection. But let's really come together and have things in common somehow and experience that community and commodity together. And I think community commodity. Can come. But, but, but the idea is, is, is this idea that, that it's predicated upon, though, a gospel that's defined not only by what we proclaim, but by what we do. And so here, here's just a reminder of that, you know, the fact that... Uh, but here's the tension. Let me, let me tell you the tension I'm wrestling with, with with Hayes. Don't you love that paper, by the way? I just think it's a phenomenal essay. And, um, and I think we had a good job here of discussing it. But the tension I'm feeling sitting back there on that couch... As a, as a leader of this organization is, is thinking, you know, but, but what would the world see if they saw us loving one another? Would they see those of, of common socioeconomic values loving other people with common socioeconomic values? Would they see people who are, who are you know, predominantly Anglo uh, loving other Anglos? Even if we were to do the best we could, if we, if we are going to take both of these principles side by side, which is to love one another and to focus our assets on love one another, but what if one another is monocultural, monoracial? Then we got, we, we got some uncomfortable stuff going on here. Now, the way you would be tempted to, to, to resolve that is, is browbeat ourselves that, that, well, we have a worship service and for whatever reason, you know, and there are reasons, good reasons actually, it's not mono, it's not as mono, uh, multicultural as we'd like it to be. Although it is multicultural, so don't forget about it, but just don't diminish what we are. But, but the point being is, okay, well, that example of what we just did in Corinthians and in Acts is a very important little observation. That, that it wasn't all being done with one method, is my point. It wasn't just the method that you know, this church um, doesn't love, you know, either, it's either local or global, is my point. That there's a both hand. But here's the problem, and this kind of gets back to, to the bigger picture of our, our vision here at CBC. We had this conversation in MA last week, this week actually. We were talking about this importance of doing social mercy and, and just, etc. And, and yet, being within the household of God. Um, our focus in Impact Week is is on the household of God. Mercy for the household of God. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, very intentionally, we've kind of gotten a little away from this a little bit, but very intentionally, it's been, it's been, the intent has been to target that week on the household of God in our greater New Haven area. To love one another. To be Acts 2. 
But then if we are not, but here's the problem. If we don't have, and that's why the Hill ministry to me is just so, so, so important. And I'm taking a lot of risk and a lot of challenges to do it. We are. We're spending more money on that than any mission we've ever done, and it's not even close. And happily. And happily. <clears throat> because it's a hard, hard ministry. Uh, in order to do that. For a lot of good reasons. <laughs> it's why it hardly happens in the PCA. I mean, I, don't, I can't name one that's in that kind of community in the whole PCA right now. I can, I know, I know, I can name several that are in multi, what I call transitional communities. It's very, very, very hard. I'm just being very frank with it right now. This is all being taped, isn't it? I don't want to think. Yeah. But the, uh, the, the, what do you think I'm saying here? What's going on? I'm trying to get honest with you about something. If, if It shows how, how deficit we would be if, if we're trying to, to fulfill the mandate that we just talked about, loving one another, the importance of the body of Christ, loving one another, city on a hill, etc., etc., creating a holistic ministry for that. But if our defi- by definition we're monocultural, what kind of witness would it be? So we've got to plant churches in other kind of communities is the point. If you want to, if you want to do social justice, plant a church where social justice needs to be done and then get the whole congregation, multi-congregation involved. If you want to do social mercy, plant a church where mercy needs to be done. You see what I'm saying? That, that's, the, that's, that's how we're trying to reconcile these two tensions that we have in the Scripture. Of, of on the one hand, targeting our mercy on the household of God but, so that it becomes a holistic ministry. The idea of this passage here where Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God while he was healing, while he was doing mercy. And we want to do the same thing. And so what we're trying to suggest here is that what you're going to begin to see in this this next hour is is an idea of mercy that is both word and deed. And so if you just think about it, you know, just just to kind of get us opened up here, you just remember what you already know. The fact that Jesus comes and says, look, what is your mission? Well, start with a thesis, just as the Father sent me, so I send you. That's your mission. To be me in the body of Christ in the world. And what was Jesus doing? It's true. He was doing it in a cataclysmic, pointing to heaven kind of way with these great miracles of exorcisms and and people receiving sight miraculously. So there was a miraculous dynamic to Christ's ministry that was meant to signify himself as the Messiah and point to the new heavens and new earth. And and I'm not expecting that we're going to go out on impact week or we're going to have a mercy ministry where we're going to be laying hands on eyes and people are going to be receiving their sight. But I am expecting that in type we would follow after Christ and helping the blind see, which might be an empowerment program that enables someone who's going blind in a community that doesn't have insurance or doesn't have this to go get surgery. You see? Or someone who needs to be empowered to find a job to create a job training program or to enlist them in a school here, right here, at, at say, you know, the, the, the university, the trade school down the street, and to say, yeah, let's let's get the let's sponsor, let's get this person into a program where they can learn a skill, a trade, and take care of their family. Now what what would that just step back? That that would make me cry before I die if we were doing this. That, that would make me cry to think that we have that kind of movement here in New Haven. Which is why, I don't, I mean, I'm being very honest and vulnerable for a minute. I mean, when I think about my purpose in life, you know, 
it, it's it's meant for me. Let's let's find a way to do it here locally. Don't worry about. It. I mean, I don't go to the conferences. I don't go to all that crap out there. I just let's find a way to target New Haven as a city on a hill and build a movement here that would be what we've just been talking about. I mean, I was back there just biting my lip as we were starting to talk about stuff going on. But we've got to start thinking like that. There's something bigger going on here. Because we can't even do what Hayes was talking about until we have churches that are in the Hispanic and in the and in the African American and the and the wealthy and in the poor and in the middle class and in the working class. We need the West Havens, we need the inner city, we need the Trumbulls, we need the we need all these churches, but we need all these churches that are committed to this vision of being the body of Christ as a city on the hill. Now if we could reach that. If we could have churches with our brothers and sisters in them, empowered in their local churches to have leadership roles, to have opportunities for teaching, to do worship in their own flesh and vernacular, but organically connected to one another so that there is no poor among us, that there is a shared power structure in our organic union in the session meetings, what would happen to the witness of Jesus Christ in Greater New Haven? It would be unbelievable. It would speak for itself. We wouldn't have to say a word, hardly. It would speak for itself. We don't need to go to conferences and and talk about it. It would just be done. I'll just look at New Haven. That's all I want to say. Just look at New Haven. That would be my dream. And that's what's behind this very thing that we try to do even in an impact week, just to give us a taste of it. And so just a little reminder, just as the Father sent me, so I send you. How did the Father send him? Well, he sent him, the Word became flesh, and he templed among us. And to that flesh is given the church, Augustine, total Christ thesis. And that church is now out there doing. And so if, if someone like John, sitting in, a, in a, a jail cell, about to lose his head, is having a moment of crisis, <laughs> I think I can understand that. And he says, man, I've got to be sure. I'm about to lose my head tomorrow morning. That's what it's got. You know, not tomorrow morning. He knew it was coming. I'm about to lose my head here. Would you go go find this Jesus that I've been pointing everybody to? And would you just make sure he's the real deal? Would you talk to him? And when they did, this is the passage. Quoting Isaiah, of course, where he was doing what Isaiah said it would look like when the Messiah kingdom comes. You know, doing justice, doing mercy, but doing it, and what we're going to say is ecclesially. It's always ecclesial. Why? Because it's never apart from the preaching of the gospel. Non-ecclesial mercy is just going out there and doing what any other good, common grace, benevolent society would do. And I applaud that. And you may be involved in some of those societies, and that's great if you do that as a citizen. And participate in common grace. So, Go serve in these places. That's great. No problem. Okay, that's not. We're not anti all the benevolent societies that are doing all these wonderful things. But for the sake of the gospel, we want to have a ministry that has all five marks of the church in it while we're doing it, including the doing of mercy and justice in the body in the household of God. You see the vision. So that's the idea here. And so, you know, we go through this thing, um, you know, again, I quote Schaefer to say exactly what, what more or less Hayes just said, that, that, you know, when the cynical world has a moment of crisis and says, where is this Messiah? Where is, the, where is my salvation? What, 
what I want them to say, what I want people in New Haven to say one day, say, well, just, just look at what's happening in this great multi-congregational movement of people over here who share authority and money together. Oh, it's easy to share a little collaborative together <laughs> or a little voluntary association together. But here's the people who share power and money together. And they are representative of a congregation that's in every pocket of our greater city. That would be radical. That does not sell except by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you, you know, you know I've lived now at every just about at every corner of the city. I've lived in Orange, I've lived in Brantford, Shoreline, West Side, downtown, and I'm gonna tell you it's not gonna sell. Unless the Holy Holy Spirit does it. And every one of those contexts, the vision is for their own. The vision is for it's anti-regionalization, if you want to put it in those words. You know, it's let's let's look out for Brantford, let's look out for Orange, let's look out for New Haven. And um, all of them are guilty of it. You know, New Haven's not thinking about how it can serve the, the region as much, and the region's not serve, thinking about how it can serve New Haven as much. It's in the politics, it's in everything. I'm going to tell you, this is so countercultural what we're talking about here. It only is going to be the Holy Spirit that sits in a boardroom of a church in whatever, you know, the suburb or the uh, or the or the inward or the in city. It's only going to be the power of the Holy Spirit that says, "Look, we will we will neglect, we will not do what we could do here because we have the money to do it." Or we're not going to say and do here because as a minoritarian ethic, I have the power politically to do it. We're not going to do that because we're going to be for the household of God. Now, I know I'm preaching right now. I am freaking preaching right now. That's all I'm doing. I apologize for that. But it just had to come out. I'll sit back there just biting my tongue. So, I don't know. What do y'all think of this? So, here's, here's the vision, and then I want to ask your question to react to this little thing. So, again, I'm assuming you can read while I talk. But just listen to this WCF, Westminster Group. Just remember who we are here. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by His Spirit and by faith have fellowship with Him in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And, related to that, of course, being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce their mutual good both in the inward and outward man, the proclaiming of the gospel and the spiritual regeneration that we, we bring, but also the, the healing of, of, of bones and, and flesh and sicknesses and illnesses because we are bringing our resources together in a manner that allows everyone to have a doctor, everyone to have an insurance policy everyone to have this, but done in a way that has to be very carefully regulated not to be an enablement-based ministry, because that violates the gospel, because the gospel is all about empowerment, inward and outward empowerment, but in a manner that is an empowerment-based ministry. So that when we do help them get into their own home, when they help them, this person get psychological help, or when we help this person, and we can go on and on and on, and it goes both ways. The rich and the poor all have idols. And the beautiful thing is that each of those cultures can be the greatest, most powerful influencer in helping each of those cultures to, to, uh, to, to defeat those idols. The poor need the rich, the rich need the poor, because without each other we're going we're gonna to be lost in our idolatries. Um, together, and, and all idols oppress us, and I see oppression in both communities. You know, it's not just the poor economically that are being oppressed. 
the fragility, the emotional, the, the social fragility of the wealthy class is unbelievable. I had an, you know, I'd never forget that because I was blessed, I guess, to live right on the line in New Haven and participate in both these, I mean, in Atlanta, both of these communities. And I'll never forget being very deeply involved in the debutante community. I was one of those, those guys that takes people into it and stuff. And, and it was just fascinating to me to see how, how much hurt and how much brokenness were in these in, in the homes of, of the old wealthy in, in Atlanta. You know, beautiful, gorgeous outward lives. You know, it, it's not uncommon, my mother being an example of being a member in three, not one, but three country clubs. And yet, brokenness, intense brokenness. And God loves those people. And so this is the idea of, of, of our vision. This is where we want to start here. Westminster Confession of Faith. What we principally believe as from the scripture is this vision. But notice that question that I've asked. If we were to do Westminster 26.1, and yet we would do it because we had very strategically only, only planted churches where there are our class and our race present, would we be fulfilling the Great Commission? Would we be a city on a hill? If all we did is did this at CPC 135, are we fulfilling the vision that Hayes has told us about? Would the world see and go, oh man, people of different class and race are sharing power, people of different right, right, you know, class and race are sharing money, resources, one another. And so with that, it feels overwhelming. I mean, I'm going to finish this little sermon at Sorry. Um, it feels overwhelming. I'm sitting on, up there going, oh, sometimes I'm just overwhelmed with what we could do, but we can't, but we, we're not, still not doing. Frust- I'm a frustrated pastor. I'll tell you that right now. Not in a bad way. And that's where this little exhortation, just do something. Step by step, just do something. Don't let the overwhelmingness of what we're going to talk about here stop you from doing anything. And that's, that's a temptation. It's a deep temptation. It's a temptation for me to want to go, let's just, let's just go to that around a little bit more. Why? Because when I go there, I'm, I'm set free from this, this, this thing that haunts me when I'm right here. I'm up there, and I just, life is good. Birds sing. It's all right. And I, and I need a little, there needs to be a, a time of spiritual renewal. And, and yet, very subtly, I know it can be something more than that. It can be escape. And this is what keeps my sanity right here. Just do something. And that means let, let God be God here. Let God be the Messiah of New Haven. Just go do something. Do, do what you can do. Take whatever resources we have and do something with it. Take a few risks. Just do something. And then let God trust that all that will somehow, step by step, lead to the promised land. But just do something. And so, this is the point of James, of course, but be doers of the word and not only hearers of it. Don't deceive yourselves. Um, And so I just want to kind of go back for this passage that y'all alluded to. uh, Whoever did it for, I think it was you. um, Or you. I don't know. Somebody said it. But the Acts 2, just imagine doing this. How could we approximate this? This awe. Just like, like Jesus said, the world, you know, will see that I am, that you are my disciples by your loved one for another. 
this passage begins with the word awe. That awe came upon everyone, all these nations. Why? Because the five marks were actually happening here. You see word, confessionalism. You see sacramentalism. You see communalism. And a communalism that was both inward and outward, just like our confession says it should be. Look for those signs. Look for the five marks. Is this a gospel center? Do you see gospel centeredness here? At least it should be implied because the sermon that got you here was Christ-centered gospel preaching. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together with one accord in the temple, they broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to them those who were being saved. And so the goal of New Haven Impact, which is meant to be a little type, a picture, just to give us a taste is to more visibly and authentically be the church acting jointly as the missionary witness of Christ in the midst of New Haven by word and deed. So stated, notice notice what happens. I was thinking of it with this group when we were talking in SLB, but think about what's going to happen this summer. This summer, you'll have the convening of a session meeting that week. You'll have a church day retreat feasting together. You'll have an Ascension Sunday worship service, just like what was happening in Acts. And you're going to have a week filled with mission and mercy. Directed towards redistribution of time and resources in a manner that one another, that cares for people both inwardly and outwardly. We We are really trying to make Acts 2 happen. The best we can make it happen given whatever limitations we have by God's providence, but also by whatever gifts and talents we have by God's providence. And I want our children to participate in it. I want our old people and our young people. I want everyone to participate in it. Because out of that, we get a taste of the joy of the power of the gospel working itself out in our lives. So what do you all think about that whole... That, that's my sermon. Amen, amen, I hope. Um, feedback. What do you what are you hearing here? Did you want to say something there? Well, I do just have a question, and it ties in with I think was saying about like groups on campus where people say, you know, like groups of kind of like minded people coming together and kind of everyone is sharing in the same um, anxieties that no one wants to say them out loud. So like even so I'm I'm totally unfortunate. I don't mean to sound argumentative, but here's my question. Like even within even like it, it, it seems like it could happen, like parts two, within just the people that come to this location, to this church, yeah. because we all are different. I mean, there's differences. We got to start somewhere, right? Within, so, so I guess I'm curious. So, um, why does it need to be more to really be it? I mean, why did? Well, because it's Acts eight. Okay, I don't know. Well, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the Jerusalem church. What, what do you do? When, when Corinth, a wealthy, if you remember the sermon series in Corinth, a very wealthy church, kind of the new rich, if you will, I think of that model, people who had just a hundred years earlier been slaves, who now had hit it rich with their trade and economic systems that had developed there in Corinth. Very, very, you know, market-driven economy context. 
not all good, not no problem with that. Okay, this isn't a, don't get into any of that mess. Um, and uh, and there's Paul saying, you know, giving this this talk about the body of Christ and love and let love be your all this stuff. And how does he do it? He says, look, we're not the only church in town here. We're not the only people in town here. The body of Christ is not just Corinthian. It's not just the wealthy class of this community. It's also Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a church that was suffering the most intense persecution probably at that time, but also the the church that was, was suffering financially. They were the poor church. And what is he doing? He's, got, he's taking the collection. And so I think partly we do it because we, we if we, so to, to Hayes' point, if we say Galatians, i.e., this is a religion that is not sectarian, this is not an American religion, this is not a rich person's religion or a poor person's religion, this is not a black religion, this is not a white religion, it's not sectarian, Jesus is not a sectarian Lord, he is Lord of all. And we say that and proclaim it, that there's neither Greek nor Jew, and da 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 But then we turn right around and we love only our own. And we proclaim the gospel only to our own, i.e. church plant only to our own, as in defined by who we are as persons, culturally or, or whatever. Then we, we present a very, mis, it, it, the, most, the most gracious way to say is we, we pr- present a very uh, incomplete witness. I, you could go further and say we we portray ourselves as being less Christian and more American. I just read that this morning, by the way. I can't remember where it was talking about. Oh, I saw it. In, you know, I wake. I was reading some Facebooks this morning, and uh, someone quoted someone talking about the whole Trump phenomenon or whatever. And I'm not going there, as you know. Um, but what what this this commentary was saying is that you know what this election has done. Is, is portrayed that evangelicals, a critique on evangelicals, that evangelicals are really more American than they are evangelical. That, that you hear Americana much more, and they're beginning to vote that way. I mean, you know, he's making, he's try, this article is trying to make the, the issue of how can an evangelical vote for some of these things, and, and you know, that, that historically would have been deal breakers, and how can this happen? And it's just exposing, but that would be what would happen. So that's my answer to you: that that we have from Scripture a definition of the body of Christ that needs to be respected, not just verbally, but in our strategic, programmatic, concrete plans and strategic plans. So again, you know, it will it will be easy to to, to plant churches like ourselves. It'll be hard not to, but we got to do it. And because of that, because without those churches, we can't even do mercy. You know, how are we going to ever do it? <laughs> we can do it only in a targeted, limited way. I don't know if that answers your hopes. That's my response. Anybody else wants to talk about it? This is a good conversation to have with future leaders of this church, so we can have it. Go ahead. When I was looking for a church when I moved here, the reason I came to this church, two reasons. Right. We, we had a nice little uh, d- debate about whether to stay in orange or not. And the fact Almost cost me my job. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> the reason that we're in New Haven, I mean, 
that's what brought me here. And the possibilities of what I've read in this document are fabulous. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think personally, and put through my book. But you were looking for that witness and wanted to experience that witness. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I, I kind of assume that about everybody here. I mean, you know, we, we probably, you know, we all made some sacrifices to be in a, in a city church. We also have a lot of advantages. It's more global. It's connecting with a community that's bigger than ourselves, etc. But, um, but yeah, the fact that we're we're looking at playing a church in Zambia. It's one of the most exciting things happening in MA right now. It's this amazing core group is developing doing a confessional theology class with us online right now. And, and we've got a guy that came here, you know, to OMSC, who loved this church and said, this is a church I want to plant over there to help me do it. And, uh, you know, that's part of the advantage of being in a global context like this. But we got to steward it. we got to have a vision that's equal to it. Or the Lord will, why would the Lord want to keep us here if we don't even have a vision to know what to do all that stuff? And our vision for a city, that, that we are fortunate that within five-mile radius we have enclaves we, we, we have a theology, a sacramental theology that, that, af, that affirms localism. So we want to have churches. We don't want a big center city mega church. You know, it's, it, I won't go there. They had a major Redeemer meeting. Uh, Tim Taylor told me 15 years ago in his cars, we were driving around, that his vision before he, he retires is to break the church up into many local churches because he recognized that it was not had the power of a local church. And we, we get people like that all the time from that movement and say, man, I never got discipled. I'm glad I mean... But, but having, to their credit, that's, they just had that meeting. I don't know if y'all know, just last week, a major meeting. Tim Keller announces his, his coming uh, retirement, uh, or at least he's going to just focus less. He's not going to be preaching anymore. And uh, and they're splintering the church up. You know, and I think it's a great thing. I'm excited about that. So we're not opposed to, we're, we're localists. Our spirituality would say, go there. Yeah. So there. So it's not that we're anti-planting churches in all the pockets, both regionally and and, and we, we see Greater New Haven as Greater New Haven, and every one of them, God loves them. I mean, I will stand opposed to any rich or poor slander. You know that is wrong. There is brokenness in every community of Greater New Haven, and there is the gospel for every community in Greater New Haven. And God is no respecter of persons. And I think that should go both ways. He doesn't prefer the poor or the rich. Not for the gospel. Now, sometimes that gets out there, but that's not what you see. Zacharias was loved by Jesus as much as someone else. So, with all that said, um, what else? Other comments? I have to That what going on? The Trump thing, like Americana. Uh, I don't see an Americana issue in the event. I see the other issue. What? Um, or like pluralism. Well, I would say it goes in different ways. You, you say that, Peggy. I, I would humbly disagree, but I think you would agree with me when I say this. Okay. I was just yesterday. I was doing some research, uh, and I remembered a. a, a, a a paper that a guy named George Marsden, he's a historian, a great, great, probably I think the best. I heard uh, John Butler when I was in my, you know, doctoral seminar over here say that the greatest historian that's ever come out of Yale, and that's coming from John Butler, who's not a Christian, by the way, is George Marsden. Unbelievable guy, Presbyterian, etc. Um, and uh, and George Marsden wrote a, a paper called the, the, the Heritage of the New School Presbyterians. The, the, I can't remember, I think it's the Heritage of the New School Presbyterian Church, something like that. He's focusing on what happens in the fundamentalist liberal 
he's talking about new school. This is really valid to this. Maybe I should share. So the, the best, the, the basic point of this this uh, essay by Marsden is he is 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 recognizing that the difference between new school and old school. If you you could say on the one hand that new school was high gospel. They were very revivalistic, and they were very interested in, in the social, what's called, the, what came to be known as the social gospel, but it started more with probably a talk like this, that we should be engaged in doing mercy and justice in the world. And they became very focused on their sort of revivalism and their social uh, you know, uh, engagement. New school Presbyterians. Old school Presbyterians were very, very committed to strict polity, strict confessional, sacramental, communal, if you mean by that government, and, and, and all. very focused on ecclesiology, what I call a high church movement. Kevin and I have talked about this a lot because we both, one of the things that we felt immediate sympathy was how Kevin and I had both been wrestling before he met me and before I met him with this idea that we should be both in. And so anyway, the, to get, but when the both ends get severed, you get in trouble, really bad trouble. Old school tends to move towards a kind of dead, gospel-less, compassion-less, I mean, these are horrible overgeneralizations, Christianity. The new school tends to focus on confession-less, sacramental-less, you know, evangelicalism, basically, a kind of non-churchly gospel. Parachurch, church, all that. Um, many of us came to Christ through the new school impetus vis-a-vis, say, a young life or crusade. You know, I did. And as you know, I ministered with those for many years. Um, over here, though, we have all this stuff that we're talking about in terms of ecclesiology and the very real presence of Christ community we start to put definition into our faith, definition into our community, all the things we just talked about with faith. So if you have that narrative, here's, here's, the, here's what's interesting. This is getting back to your question. I had to give you that backdrop. So Marsden, brilliant, begins to discern how that, that the old, the new school, it's, it's, a, it's an overall consensus in academia that new school Presbyterian and all the other new schools of other denominations, not just Presbyterians, that this new school movement led to what we call today classic liberalism. I mean, that's, that's just universally acknowledged within the academic world, that, that New School Presbyterianism or any spirituality like that, hint, hint, leads to classic liberalism. And it gets back, and you have to mind the theological assumptions. Going to, and at the very core of that classic liberalism is this idea that we want to make a, a that we want to look for correlations between the church and the world, and that our focus is on culture transformation. The focus is on tra- transforming the world. A, a movement that, that wanted, for instance, during the 19th century, to uh, both sides of, of, of the South and the North, the new school impetus was to form Christian constitutions for the state. Both of them had as their vision to make a Christian America both north and south. That came out of new school. The old school Presbyterians were, were adamantly opposed to that. Said, no, 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 no. <laughs> we are not here trying to form, uh, uh, to find a point of contact with the world. 
and then to, and, and therefore compromise what we believe in order to agree together with the world so that we can then work with those agreements and making the world a better place. The old school would have said exactly what Hayes has said. Exactly what we're saying here. We want to preserve church qua church as a kingdom not of this world so that the witness of that church will be more powerful and pure. And we won't be compromising our doctrines and compromising our strategies and compromising everything we do to reach the world. And we'll, we'll be, be, a good old school would say we want to be public. Now again, they sometimes lost the gospel in doing this, became sectarian. Well, all that to say that to your point, then, Marsden goes on to show that not only does this new school impetus create what you might describe as the Republican version of the merge of Christianity and culture, but it also creates the very same dogma that produces, I don't know which, you know, again, the Hillary or the, or the blue. So there's as much moralism and liberalism as there is in fundamentalism. There's as much culture influence in their movements in modern fundamentalism as there is in modern liberalism. Do you hear what I'm saying? They can be fundamental. If you think about the Scopes trial, if you think about the fundamentalist movement, everything about it is now is being is reacting to and is is the the playing field is trying to define itself in relationship to culture. That's what both of these are doing. They just come out of it with very different visions. What we are saying as a city on a hill and as a kingdom of this world is we're our culture. We're apolitical. We're going to transcend all of this. We're going to say my constitution comes from God through the Holy Scripture and we're just going to be the community. That We're going to be this, this community of God. And we're going to build a new society within our to, But it's public. It's open. Anyone can join us. But they do it through faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the difference. Coming right down to your point. You're right. I could put all sorts of isms to the different blue and red sides of a culture transformationist model of ministry. And it's very vogue right now. Um, I mean, y'all might hear this, but I mean, I, I'm going to be one of these people that are going to be taking a stand against what's happening in our PCA right now, which is very, very oriented towards culture transformationist in order to gain the approval of culture with a view that if I gain a, an approval of the culture, it will give us a more authentic witness. And what I'm going to be saying a little bit more is, you know, we've been there. We've done that. Go read your history books. You know, let's, let's go back to this idea of a two-kingdom idea. They're not against each other, but the tension itself is the very beauty of it. You know, Stephen Carter said that out of the Yale Law School. He said, you know, the, the relation of church and state was always intended to be that of a kind of dialectical tension. Precisely so that the church could have its own voice and not get compromised in its voice, which is good for the state. It's good for the state to have a balance of power, a church that can speak. If you go back, and I have a paper if you want to read it. It goes through from Augustine, it goes to the Scottish Reformation, it goes to Calvin, Geneva, it goes to uh, Germany and the Confessing Church, it goes to the Civil War. I, go, I do a history, I wrote this a long time ago, and it basically shows that strain of where the, great, the, the church that emerged most witness, most powerful for Christ, was the church that distinguished itself. I mean, what do you think was going on in Nazi Germany? The Christian, not, you know, swastika. The Christian Church of Germany. It was the confessing church, we call it. 
the Bonhoeffers, etc., that stood opposed to aligning itself with the state and its Christianity, that stood opposed to the state calling fast days and prayer days for the church to practice. You'd think, well, a Christian would love for Sarah. Wouldn't you love our government to say, hey, I call all Christians to pray? Well, if you go back to these movements, they were all opposed to it. It's not for the state to tell Christians to pray. Isn't that ironic? But they, they sensed it because to do that comes an agenda. So I'm, I'm, this is really an important conversation. And um, I hope you, I hope, please forgive me if this has been too much of a lecture, but I really don't know where else and how else to say it. Um, so I hope this has been helpful. I do want to get into our material, but are there any other thoughts or questions here? You, you just got a glimpse into the subterrain, <laughs> the world that happens to me on Friday mornings. Is that paper on the CBC website that you're talking about? It is for Mission Anabano. Okay. If you go to the Mission Anabano, uh, we just did a cultural engagement uh, uh, section in our training, and it's there. It's called Collegial Ethics and something. Maybe this is called Collegial Ethics. This is... There it is. You know the title. The Centrality of the Church is a Social Strategy. And I'm, I'm engaging mostly, I did this in the course I took up in Aberdeen, but I'm engaging mostly the, uh, the, the post-liberal tradition in that. But I'm showing that there's something in common with the post-liberal tradition and the reform tradition in that whole a- analysis. Any other questions here about this little con, this introduction, excuse me, to the reason why we need to now take that paper from Hayes and talk really practically about doing social mercy, mercy, but doing it in relationship to the church. And hopefully I have a group of people here that will say, why don't we go help blank? Why don't we go help blank? And we're going to be a little more discerning even than last year about that. I was, I was just not quite as vigilant to, to, to be involved like that. And so we're going to be really kidding. No, we're going to, we're going to help the church of Jesus Christ during this. But it's going to be the church defined not only by our local 135. Next in Central Circle is our other congregations. We may do something for Fairfield. We may do something for, for you know, the Hill. But then our other, I would love to, we're going to contact VOH and say, okay, are there some things we can do that would help your churches? You know, and we'll just go through the concentric circles. And that's, hopefully, y'all pray for that, that all come together. Other questions, thoughts? All right, so let's turn to, um, let me open this baby up again. There we go. Oops, no, excuse me here. I'm going to go over to, okay, let's go to the paper. Did you see this empowerment PDF? Total Christ through gospel-centered empowerment. Um... So did y'all get that? How many of y'all got to read it? I know that was the last to read, I think, so I, I didn't know if everybody was going to read it or not. I'm going to get this bigger here. Did anybody get to read it? That'll tell me just whether I need to assume it or not. Just a few of you did? Well, i tell you what then. Maybe I might just zip through it. But let me let me just kind of show you the categories of it. And uh, we won't go through the whole paper. I was going to hopefully have more of a, a conversation. Um, this was a paper that, or a little piece that I wrote for the Vision Anabano magazine thing that we do. This was a draft. This was a pre-published version. I just don't have the other one that I I have it, but you have to go to this other program that makes it really horrible to read. But um, so this is just the one I was working off of that ended up getting nicely uh, edited and cleaned up a little bit. Just so you know. Um, but I want to just skip down and. Um, 
you know, I'm giving you sort of the whole idea. But I want to just go to our focus in the in this volume. You see that right where I am now? By the way, you can get this on the website if you if you want. Let me just read this. Uh, a total Christ effort will avoid an either-or relation between spiritual and evangelistic, or inward-focused ministry in relation to gospel-centered transformation, or a social material outward-focused ministry in relation to economic, vocational, and medical empowerment. That is to say, we want to avoid any idea of humanity that is not concerned for the whole person, both inward and outward, as related to holistic ministry. Um, again, I quote Acts chapter 2, um, how they believed, they believed were together and had all things in common. Um, you know, it's interesting that the mercy that we saw Jesus do, we don't, I don't think we see, I know there were some miraculous things going on around Acts 2, but what's interesting about this passage is the way that mercy was being done was more what we would do, as in just pooling our resources and helping one another. And so it's kind of interesting as a case study, if you will, for what we should look like. Um, concerning then this holistic focus, transformational and empowerment focused mission and ministry, um, you know, we talk about that. I'm going to zip through here. Um, uh, you know, we talk about the compassion industry. Um, now, as you know, it's now become very, very popular within our tradition, and I'm glad it is. What some people call the compassion industry, what some people call the whole idea of, of um, you know, social mercy and justice sort of stuff. Um, I think it's great that we're talking about that, uh, insofar as it relates to the holistic side. What's dangerous is there's probably nothing more toxic and dangerous than guilty Christians doing mercy. Let me say that again. There's probably nothing more toxic and dangerous than guilty Christians doing ministry or mercy. Why do you think that is? And why would it, and a guilt, think about your parenting, why would guilt lead to enablement? What is the goal of guilt? Relieving it. So what will you do to relieve guilt? Maybe whatever's easiest. So typically it's just, you know, as we talked about in the 50-something, typically if someone comes to me and wants help, if, my, if, if it's guilt, I'm saying, what's the least I can do to get this guy out of my office in order I can wake up tomorrow morning and not feel bad? That's guilt. It's a very minimalistic way of giving. And it's not, no one benefits. <laughs> you, you know, no one's going to really benefit. Um, I.e., I'm not going to benefit. You know, you know, Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. I'm not cheerful. You know, I'm not feeling passion in this gift. And on the other hand, the other person... Now, there's another thing that comes with that guilt, though. Not just is it going to be minimalistic or in that kind of, it's not properly motivated out of the gospel, so I'm not experiencing the gospel. Chances are it's not being experienced as the gospel. But what else does, does guilt drive? Yeah. What you're describing is non-confessional. Yeah. Yeah, good. So, the, so another thing is guilt. I'll add that to number two. So it's a giving that's not principle-based. So you're not confessing. Yeah, you're, you're trying to absolve yourself yeah, yes. by doing good for some other person. It violates the whole gospel in our own life. Yeah, works righteousness, gospel comes through that, etc., etc. Anything else about what guilt would do? Good, good. It, I'll, I'll put a word on that. It becomes paternalistic. 
becomes paternalistic. That is, a kind of giving that by its very nature needs to be the giver. Because, see, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to relieve guilt. So, a paternalistic, guilt-driven parent is going to want to be a sugar daddy parent. Because it, 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 I'm doing for you in a manner that gives you gets you to respond, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Or I like you, I like you, I like you, I like you, or whatever it is. There's an immediate sort of thing. Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying that, okay, I mean, well, just, these are generalities. And so, so yes, paternalistic. Now, what does paternalism do? And I, I hate that word because I, I'm a father and I'd like to be paternalistic if I mean by being a good father. Um, and it's sad that we've attached that word. We need to find another Can you word. Explain? I, I don't think I've used that word. Yeah. that word in that way. Yeah. Can you yeah, yeah. explain what that means? Yeah, we'll get to that uh, in some of the stuff we'll talk about today. But basically, um, uh, paternalistic means that, that I still maintain power. I'm not giving person power. I am myself the powerful giver. And this is the weak receiver. Like maintaining a parent relationship with a five-year-old. Yeah. All yes. That's a good way to put it. Thank you. It's, it's like being a, a parent to a five-year-old with, a, with an adult. And they're perpetuating it. Very good. I like that. Very good. I'm going to remember that when people ask that question. It's a nice little image right there. So yeah, now I'm working with a teenager kid who's, who's, I should be helping a kid this age become a mature person, and yet I'm relieving guilt for whatever worldview I brought with me from my parents, maybe whatever, but I'm relieving guilt because I want to give them things. I want to give them things. I want to give them things. That's what my parents did, and that's what made them important parents, so I'm going to do it. Or that's what my church did, that's what I'm going to do. Or that's what the world says that Christians should do. Again, this is a real temptation for those of us who are more socially achieved or socially uh, outwardly, if I could say, materially blessed, whatever you want to call it. Because there's a guilt sort of thing, and we have money, and with that money comes power, and with that money and power, it's a great temptation. It's not that it's wrong to give, and it's not wrong to do. Don't get me wrong. We're, we're classifying the giving. But paternalistic giving is to keep a person in the dependency mode. And that's not gospel giving at all. There's certain demands on a level of around that because you get Now, the temptation with what I just said is to then, okay, I can't give. I mean, this is the thing that's haunted me as I walk down the streets of New Haven. You know, and I'm not going to tell you what I do or don't do because I'm not sure I do the right thing. But the point is, is one thing I desperately need, though in my conscience, is I need to find a way to be non-paternalistic and to, and, to make, and to continue any system that's evolved, whether formally or informally, in our city to be paternalistic. But I can't then just do nothing. That's, too, that's an excuse. I can't just do nothing. And herein, I find myself in a leadership role in a downtown church, and i got to do something. I mean, I, you know, and you've got to do something as co-leaders in this church. And as members of this church, we got to do something. So what would that be? And that's what we now move forward in this little, what would it look like to do something but not to, to fall prey to paternalism? 
And so here's just a list of, of sort of what's called the ABCD method. This comes off of Thicker. Uh, uh, I have a little handout about Thicker. We did it in one of our other meetings here in the first Friday, you may remember. Um, but the gist of it is this. You never do for the needy what they can be empowered to do for themselves, which is entirely more complicated. It's so easy to write a check. I don't have to get messy. It's, I mean, just the other day, and I still feel wrong for this, but a woman came to Lisa, and I'll just confess to Lisa, we, and Lisa and I both talked about it, and we just felt really bad. But we went out to, uh, what was it, a lunch? Dinner? Yeah, but it was lunch. What was it? Okay. Yeah, lunch. Things after this, wasn't it? Yeah. It was last time after this. Okay, so I should have had this message, this lesson before that. And a woman came up to us. It was incredibly cold, and, um, and she's needing money, right? And uh, I don't know. I mean, usually I'm not feeling too guilty about that. You know, I, try, I direct them to the Columbus House. I direct them to places where I know there's some accountability and et cetera. But it was a very cold day. And so we sat there, and I felt compelled. I took out my wallet, and I'm flipping through it, and basically didn't have anything to give her that, uh, except for a really, really, I happened to have an old gift from Christmas in my wallet. I'll just tell you, it was a $100 bill. And I thought, I'm not really comfortable with this because I, I do see a person who's clearly a, a drug addict alcoholic. You can see it in their hands. And I just wasn't comfortable with that. But, I, but, you know, but, but you know what? I knew what to do. I knew what to do. What was it to do? I mean, it was really cold. you remember? I could have gotten messy. What? Give your coat. No, that's probably not what I would have done. She actually had a good coat. But that's a good thought. Bring her into Bring her into that would be one thing to do. Okay? And the moment I do that, then maybe I need to take her from there over to the, the center that she needs to go to. And I just quietly walked away. You know, now, in that moment, I'm not saying that it would have been wrong. Not, I, don't take any program from what I just said. Sometimes it's right to walk away. Sometimes it would right, have been right for my marriage to do it, maybe. You know, Lisa and I were having a, our, our annual date that night. I didn't want it that day because we didn't do any breakfast because we usually do breakfast right now. And um, and that's what we were doing. And I had a little rash today, but we both sat down. We just said, you know what? And I confessed to Lisa and said, I was just, I was wrong. We should have brought her in. We should have given her a good meal, uh, had an opportunity in a range with her. I, just, I wasn't. I was tired. I didn't want to do it. Now, look, I'm just, that's the way it goes. I'll do better next time. But the point I'm making is I don't want to say, Never do for the needy what they can be empowered to do for themselves. What would it have looked like to deal with a crisis, perhaps? It was cold. She could probably have benefited from a good meal in her, in her gut. Um, and, uh, and get her to a place where she would have shelter. And that was a situation that I failed. And I, I really, I feel bad. Um, and I've asked God's forgiveness. And I know he does. And I'll do better next time. But the point is, is, is this don't do for other needy what they can be part of do for themselves. It, it just is so much more time consuming. It, it means when an application comes that you're going to have to actually ask for, well, let's look at a budget. Let's do a budget together. Oh, man, that's uncomfortable to ask people about their money. I don't want to do that. Can we just, can we just write a CPC check? Come on. And, and man, all of a sudden, here it comes. Don't we have compassion around here? Can we do this? Can we do that? Can we do this? And it comes in many, many places. It takes real courage and love to do this. Limit one-way help to emergencies and seek for mutual two-way one-anothering instead. What is he talking about? What are we talking about there? 
That means make sure that there's something that comes, that there's a mutual one another in. Yes, mutual. I tell you what, you know, and you know, there is crisis giving. Okay, notice limit crisis. There is emergency, what we call, we distinguish, what's going on here is you distinguish what's called crisis giving with chronic giving. And the key here, and almost the mistake that's always made in mercy, is we stay in crisis mode too long. If someone comes and says, I need rent money, well, at some point we say, okay, we're going to, there's an immediate crisis here. Let's get you the money. But you got to understand, with this money, um, it, it's not coming next month. So now let's work together and develop. Let's let's. Do, what is the real problem? Why 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 are you getting money? You know, and it always comes. Well, I know I can do that, but no, you're there for a reason. What was it? What's the chronic issue here? Maybe there's a health problem. Okay, so I don't mean to sin necessarily. Maybe it's a health problem. Maybe it's a a, a problem. This person needs some job skills. Maybe it's a problem that, that there's this dysfunctional family that, that this person is giving all their money to and not taking care of her own because this this little apartment has 15 people living in it and when you bring home a paycheck, it gets disseminated to the most critical crisis-related need at that moment. That's something that I had to deal with a lot when I did ministry in Tecumwood of, of inner city of Atlanta. You know, we, we, I, was, I developed this amazing, you know, this, we, we developed this amazing called PIC, uh, Private Industry Council. Do we have that? Is that around here anybody now? Private Industry Council? I don't think there is. But it was a group of, of private industry committed to doing benevolent work in New Haven. And so, and it was not, I mean, in, in Atlanta. And it was not Christian. So I went around to these companies doing what I'd done. Ironically, I worked in Atlanta for a year in business and somebody, and I knew somebody, and I'd called some of these people. And so I went around and said, hey, would you be willing to sponsor a kid for a summer job? And we put together a summer job program. We're working empowerment here. And then we had these jobs, and these kids were going into these jobs. And then you know what happened? We had our old Bible study on Friday after they lit. We'd all come together on Friday. We would share stories about the job. We would also have a Bible study, do the gospel. And then they'd get, go home, and, and we would drop them off. And there was a little CVS over here, and there was a little market over here. And those kids just went right there, these high school kid kids. And you know what they were buying? Fishing poles. We're in the inner city of Atlanta. There's not a creek, much less a river. Fishing poles. And we just saw, this is highly irrational. What's going on here? And we got to talking to them. And we started addressing You know what it was? I got to spend my money before I go home. Why? Because when I got home, there's a real communal ethic in the poor community. Everything you make belongs to everybody. And if there's an uncle that's in jail... You, you take the money and you go get that guy out of jail. And that's what was happening. And yet it's a sea of need that was never, the, the water level was never getting, the chronic issues were never getting dealt with. The water was never rising. And we had to say, wow, we got a much bigger problem here than just getting them jobs. We've got to deal with a whole social community revitalization projects here. And there were big issues here, government issues, like why people can have subsidized housing and not be, but you couldn't be married to do it, you know, and how that was feeding this problem. Uh, it's overwhelming, but just do something, you know, and there he is. So that's a real issue. It gets messy. With respect to financial empowerment, we seek to empower the needy through employment, micro-lending, micro-enterprise development, training, using grants sparingly to reinforce achievements. 
Focus on leadership development within an intentional strategy for training and steps of transfer as needed. Target long-term and sustainable solutions over quick fixes, on and on and on it goes. Now, any, any thoughts about that? Any comments, questions? Those are sort of the main, that's what we mean by empowerment. Targeting chronic as quickly as you can with a view towards finding strategies that, that create not a paternalistic but an empowerlistic kind of, of, a, of a thing. But it's going to take time and organization, which is why we're, it's, it's, it's hard. Questions? Are we all just kind of exhausted with the thought of it? <laughs> That's what I am. Yeah. One of the thoughts is that uh, people normally define their problem as the symptom. Or the, the symptom they think is the problem. And I think that's what you're, you're saying in here. There's an underlying cause for that problem. And that's what, what needs to be defined and, uh, and addressed. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Other thoughts? Well, if you do that, concept number one, that's going to lead to concept number two. And that's church-based empowerment. Now, why would I say that? Think about this for a minute. Um, There needs to be a holistic... Think about what you would lack if you don't have a church. Not just the church in terms of what it proclaims the message part of it, but a church in terms of what would you be lacking that would that would prevent you from doing empowerment? First of all, how is this person you're helping defined without a church? How is this person defined? Getting back to what we talked about earlier. As an individual, maybe? Now, moment, the moment you start talking about the person as a communal participant, there are obligations and responsibilities that we all have one to another. There is a context where this person can, can engage and give their own. So maybe they have no money, but they have time. There is a context where there's a genuine opportunity for give and take. Because, and, and in a way that everyone can feel that they matter. So just by the very nature of what we, if you think about all those things we do that define church, the body of Christ, not all people have gifts uh, the same, but all have gifts to give, so therefore find what your gift is and use it, quiet Romans 12. Okay, we would approach this, you're part of our family here. Think about what that's saying. And as a family, we're going to help you with this, but we need your help here. We really need your help. This isn't just, you're not paying for this. This isn't you doing work to pay. No, we need we need someone to help us with this. Could you do that? Yeah, I think I could. I'd be yeah, that's great. And this person walks around being thanked every time that what they do is is helping people. And they're feeling the joy and they're being re- they're being converted from from this weak, you know, uh, disempowered person. They're learning what it feels like to be needed, what it feels like to be appreciated. They're learning that their work matters. There's power in their actions. A lot of worldview is getting reconstructed, and you're not even talking about it. Because you created a system for it to happen. This is something we as small groups need to talk about in our in our mercy ministries in a small group. You know, what are we doing here? Have we really thought about this before we get into a program that's just giving, 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 giving? Are we really empowering families? Are we really empowering people 
and how we give? And, and is there some methodology where it's not one way? And if it's a reoccurring giving, then are we going to the greater church to say there is a bigger problem here? And we're not helping people in the gospel center way not to address it. And so, yeah, the church is amazing um, and how powerful and good that is. Concept number two, uh, empowerment recognizes the close interdependent relation of the gospel as applied to both the inward and outward person. Um, you know, brokenness is, is spiritual, even as the spiritual has a link to the physical. You know, the, I wish I, I got to find this quote, but there was a, does anybody know about this? Probably, I think I, y'all might, somebody might have here told me this. But there was an article that was written by a mother who had a very promiscuous college life, uh, sexually. And it was a mother who wrote to the, her daughter. You might know what I'm talking about, Lisa. Was that you or anybody here? Nobody knows of it? Well, doggone, I'm going to totally screw it up. But there was such a profound little letter. And I kind of go see if I found, find this one. But basically the gist was that she said to her daughter that um, I, I have learned that my... Um, that when you touch my skin, you touch my soul. In other words, having sex is not just physical. It's not just something that, that affects, that gives me a, a physical pleasure. That something happens to you. Something is, is going on in your spirit. Something that she, this woman, this mother, confesses to her daughter that she's been struggling with for all of her life. Now, you definitely hear that, say, in rape victims, to give you an illustration. You know, this idea that it just it just changes you for the rest of your life. You know, this this Aaron, what's this uh, trial that's now being publicly out there? Aaron, whatever her name is, she's a newscast sports person, and the whole idea of the peeping Tom. Andrews. Andrews. And I was listening, watching, you know, CNN News one night, and, and she it showed her in the trial really crying and being upset. I don't know if anybody saw this. But I remind, it was reminding me of that lady, that letter. I mean, this thing has... It, 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 that someone saw her naked and it was posture all over the internet. It, it, it's, it's, it's changed her. It's not just physical, in other words. What I'm trying to say here is, is basically holistic. The reason why we want to do, we want to do mercy recognizing that there's always spirituality in it. There's always more to helping someone than just, you know, touching. To touch their skin, on the one hand, to touch their skin is to touch their soul. So that's why we do mercy outwardly. But on the other hand, to touch their soul with the gospel and to help them understand that gospel and begin to change their identity is going to affect their skin. There is a dialectical interdependent relationship between body and soul is really what we're saying here. And there's some real implications for that and how we would structure mercy. What would we require? What are the things that we would do? Are you is this are we going to give it to someone who is participating in the worship of the church? We're not. Are we going to give it to someone who's committed to being a member of good standing of the church? Or not? Now you'll hear some that'll say, oh you're being uh, it's ironic how this gets turned on its face, and how would it be? Someone would say, well, you mean you're only giving mercy to those who are members of your church, or at least coming into the context of membership? And I'll say, yeah, from the church sources we will. Now, tell me, come on, come on. Tell me what's wrong with that. That's selfish. That's selfish. Why is it selfish? We're only caring for your own. We're always caring for our own. That's right. You just 
just about numbers. You're just trying to get people to join the church. Just, just about getting numbers. Good. That's right. That's a good one. In fact, it's it's almost taboo to go do mercy and to bring the gospel with it. It's like, well, you're 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 being opportunistic. Now, ouch, ouch, ouch. All three. That hurts. Because those aren't values that I, I want to affirm. And yet, I disagree. Because if I'm gospel-centered, I want to restore a human being. Right? And so there's this idea that there's... And it's not to negate the other ministries are in the world. It's, see, so the issue is not, are those things, is it wrong to do that? It's right. But why would I, with the limited resources of the church, not do what we only can do when there are hundreds and millions of both state-sponsored and, 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 and private industries that can do otherwise? In other words, it's not that those things, it's not that it's bad. It's not that if you want to go participate in, I don't know, whatever ministry, you couldn't do it, or whatever thing, that's fine. Go do it. In fact, that's a good thing to do as a good Christian citizen of, of, our, of our community. But why would I take the resources of Christ that have been brought to this table and not use it holistically when we know that there's a more powerful, transformative ministry that we can have? Why would we give up? Because, I mean, I, I guess you could say to me, well, Pastor, there's plenty of people who are, you know, I'd say, you know, I'll tell you what, when, when, we, when there's no more poverty in the church of Jesus Christ, I'll, I'll start deciding. I'll, I might think about it. But right now, we have the opportunity to do something really magnificent, knowing that the flesh and the soul always touch. And there's a transformative power that we know of the gospel that is greater than any other power on earth. And I want to bring good. And I'm doing it in the image of Christ. Christ said, my kingdom is not this world. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There are many good things that government does. Many good things that other, uh, other societies that are governed under the authorities of the government do. But for the church, let's do it all. And that's the idea here. What do y'all think of that? Well, that's sort of the gist of it. Unfortunately, this is only, I just realized how little, there's about, there's all kinds of bullets that I put under these other parts that are in the other article that are not there. With that, let me turn you to this other one. I'm going to, we have uh, until 1230, you're going to need about an hour, I think. You want a full hour? Yeah. Okay, so I'll be through in about uh, 30 minutes, um, 35 minutes. So let's go to this, um, let's see this one, if you have this one. You see that one? bigger. So I'm not going to repeat what some of this stuff is. By the way, this is the first, this this incorporates the introduction of that paper I was telling you about. Um, and uh, I won't do it now. But I love this little quote by, by Yoder. Uh, again, Yoder's not a theologian that I would encourage you to read um, if you want to have orthodox theology. But he has some really good uh, thoughts in terms of being the father of post-liberal theology. And here's what he says. The church must be a sample of the kind of community which, for example, economic and racial differences are surmounted. Only then will it have anything to say to the society that surrounds it about those, how those differences must be dealt with. Um, and then with that, I'm getting into the whole idea of the, of the missional church here in relation to mercy. David Ferguson, who is a little more uh, orthodox, a, a British theologian, he says it this way. He's been, he's been thinking about just the way in which post-Christian, we live in a post-Christian world, 
and that more and more our society is not governed by what we used to call Judeo-Christian values. We, I think, can affirm that. I mean, what's happened in the in the uh, marriage issue, for instance, just is. I mean, I don't. I, some of you who are younger, I just don't think you can appreciate how they just blew the the mind off of the boomer generation. That just never would have been dreamed of, and and not because they're Christian. I mean, I'm talking my friends that are not Christian uh, from high school are still their minds are blown. That's just so. That was such an amazing event, and so we're. And it just just it just illustrates that we are increasingly in a world in very fundamental ways. I do think this election is exposing it. That we're just not. There's a there's there's a world that's that's, that's really countercultural to ours, counter spiritual, whatever you want to call it. And so that's where he's saying this this quote: "The time has therefore come to bear witness to the specific virtues of the Christian life through reference to a setting in the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Scripture, and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Christian witness in this social context bears a character not of seeking common ground with those who dwell." outside the walls of the church, but of articulating a vision that is distinctively and sometimes counter to the prevailing culture. So this gets into this whole issue of our, our, our vision for, you know, um, and I'm going to skip down here. And I want to illustrate this. So on the one hand, um, you have amazing continuity in the Old Testament where the Israel, the church, was commanded to take care of its own. That, that, that Israel was to take care of its own, if you will, and to do it in all sorts of laws. Remember, this is a church here, um, even if it's a theocratic church. And so uh, you have all these sorts of laws, which you can go back and read later. Um, and, and then you go into the Proverbs. and, and the, I mean, it's just, it's really hard to argue that the church should not have an intentional vision for how it's going to minister to the poor. It's just very hard even if we define poor or poverty holistically. Um, it was it was the prophecy. I'm going through every genre. If you see what I'm doing here, I'm going through the redemptive history and just showing there's never been a time when this hasn't been a vital aspect of the church's witness. And so you can go through this and see this. Um, and then, of course, we've already covered some of the issues here. Matthew 25, of course, just is right in your face. Or I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Yes, we can spiritualize that. You were spiritually hungry. You were spiritually thirsty. But clearly, it's meant to be both and, at the very least. Um, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. But da, 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 da. I think you're pretty familiar with this. Acts, we see, of course, in chapter 2. The collection of the saints, we've mentioned it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself sustained by the world. I've already quoted Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26. You see it here in our Book of Church Order. I mean, guys, I mean, I'm trying to make the case and to be good Presbyterians, just in case you hadn't identified it as a Presbyterian doctrine. Just go to our Confession of Faith, go to our Book of Church Order, look at what the offices are meant to do in the Dacom office, you know, whether you hold to that or not. Clearly, the church has a main witness and authenticity problem if it doesn't take care of the outward and inward needs of its people. That's what I'm trying to convince us of. And so hopefully we see that, and I hope you see it as not a liberal program, not a fundamentalistic America program. This really is a confessional-based program that we want to have here. But then that raises the question that I wanted to slow down on. 
And that is okay. So, but are there any instructions about how we would do that? If it's so important, did he just leave it to us to go, okay, whatever, you know, do whatever's right in your own heart? No, we have a lot of instruction, actually. And this is a passage that's very, very helpful. Um, uh, let me just go through here. Yeah, I've already quoted some of those things. Uh, you know, we do talk about the unbelievers, believers issue. I'm going to, I want to really hit on this First Timothy 6 passage. Now, this is the thing about the passage that's really surprising to you. Now, remember that in, in the New Testament, economies were not individualistic. They were family. I mean, the closest you're going to get that I'm aware of, of what the world would have been like in Paul's day relative to economies is, I don't know, the, the hills of Pakistan or the hills of Afghanistan, where there was a village system economy. Very patriarchal and a good, and I want to say in a good sense. I mean, it, you know, what do you see in Genesis? What do you see? You see households and households that consisted sometimes of hundreds, even thousands of people. That you know, it's so funny because you hear Abraham and his household going and attacking Sodom, and you're kind of thinking, "Wow, the brothers." You know, it, my little Americanized, individualized the fe- definition of a household was what? I, I'm really thinking here's Abraham and a couple of guy, a couple of his sons. They're going down there and beating Sodom. No, you find out there were thousands. In his household, <laughs> in Deuteronomy, I believe it's nine, where where they they divide up Israel, but remember they do it in a household model, so that you have heads of thousands, heads of hundreds, heads of fifty. There's a sense in which the household was a unified concept, even if it it required, even if it included many nuclear households, and even those who were economically tied to that household, like the servants. So it's important to recognize that when you start to get into this passage. First of all, that we're dealing with these household issues. And we're dealing with the issue of mercy. And and what and what do we see here except empowerment? Notice the, the, the stuff. Could someone read that? Could someone be willing to read that, or at least half of it, and somebody else read the other half, whatever you want to do? Honor widows who are really widows. If a widow has children or grandchildren, they should first learn the religious Believing woman has relatives who are really widows, 
let her assist them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can assist those who are real widows. I can't believe this is in the Bible. Seriously. Oh my goodness. But you know it is. It's in the Bible. And I don't think that we want to accuse Jesus of being uh, legalistic, strict. I don't know. What, what are the words that come to your mind coming out of our very, what, society? Very individualistic. I mean, you can't read this. You can't read this before you've read Richard Hayes' article that we just talked about, or you would just think this is absolutely crazy, nutsy stuff. Like... You know, is there really? I mean, you look at this, and I, I think of Bob, Bob Lupton and his little book, "The Really Truly Poor," and the point he's making there is good. That I mean, would anybody be worthy of any help here? I mean, you know, it looks like it's kind of a. And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, because the Bible says so. So what that makes me do? You're getting right in my psyche, by the way. And anybody that believes in the Bible, you got to get in my. Here's the psyche. The Bible says so. I believe it. So therefore, I got to start interpreting it differently. I'm obviously not getting this. If what I'm coming out of it is something unloving, unkind, ungracious, ungospel. I mean, the same Paul that wrote Romans, justification by grace, your faith alone, like nobody else. The same Paul that says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The same Paul, the same Paul, the same Paul wrote this. And either he has lost his mind... Worse still, that God is really a killjoy or a kill love, or we've got to understand this right as consistent with the gospel. Did I hear? Did I see a hand? I kind of thought I might have. Yeah. Without that, without this sort of passage, I mean, our whole talk about empowerment and not being paternalistic—it's it's really not rooted in scripture. This gives us that. That's right. That's right. And you would have seen similar sorts of things, by the way, in the Old Testament, too. Uh, But this is our New Testament manual, so let's look at it. Woo! Okay, let's let's break this thing apart a little bit. Let's parse it. First of all, um, the word honor. Um, If you look at it, I'll give you a little brief uh, thing here. I won't go through it all. You can read these passages. Here it very clearly means outward assistance. As in, you know... Financial. Um, it's not just respect the old wooden. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is, uh, no, is she, they're clearly speaking of, you know, they're talking later on about adding her to the list. I mean, there's clearly some kind of an intentional program that's been put in place in the church to care for those who are widows. Now, how is a widow defined here? Just generally, before we go into specifics. So, honor the widow, i.e., give her assistance, financial assistance or economic help, in a holistic way, hopefully. But how is a widow defined? Real or unreal? Yeah. Okay, good. First of all, there's the true widow... And then there's the faux widow. All right? Uh, the widow that, that, that can can be misinterpreted as a widow, but it's not really a widow. And that raises the question, then how, what would distinguish them? What would distinguish the real widow from the real widow? And you're going to have to read this 
And you're going to have to translate this into a context that fits our own. Because much of what's happening here, again, because of the family economy, is, is lost. So remember, all this stuff about household could be today in our wage labor system. You know, by the way, i got to say this. Oh, I shouldn't say this. Lord, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. No, no, no. I'm playing that game. But, you know, it's really helpful. There's a historian uh, named Eugene Genovese, who's a Marxist historian, but he's one of the, he, he, he's one of the most uh, respected uh, historians of the American Civil War era. And he's done a masterful job of understanding the economic systems that were being contrasted between the North and the South. And what's very interesting is, is how he understands rightly that in the transition from a family system economy to a wage labor economy that was happening in the North, and the way that was in such great contrast with the family system economies of the South. And it's just amazing how this, people call him Marxist you know, historian, um, but how amazing it is that if you, when I was reading and studying him for my project here many years ago, as you know, um, the, the way in which I was, he was, he was understanding the difference. I guess is my point. I'm not trying to affirm or not affirm any of this. I'm just saying basically that there is a there is a significant transition that your brain's going to have to go through to understand this passage. But to help you do that, what would be the if, if, if Paul is here talking about family, 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 what would that be replaced with in today's economic system? So you get the context here. If the family is the... What? What's today the family in an economic sense? Your work. It's, it's the corporation. It's the, it's the small business. It's the... Those institutions, what's very interesting is how these institutions are increasingly becoming family. I don't know if you, you you're, I love reading some of the, the, the material, but I was talking to someone in our church here uh, recently. Uh, she's working, um, I can't remember where she's working, but it's, it, oh no, I tell you it is. Go, go talk to Alicia and, um, and Trey and the way they're converting their work. Uh, they're, you know, the whole academic uh, counseling work, but how they're converting their workplace after the model of a new system economy that's related to businesses. Um, it's, it's what the neo-feminist Harvard School was talking about 20 years ago and reconstructing the workplace to be more famil, more family. That's the whole maternal versus paternal idea of, of workplace management. And you, you see it at Google, you see it, and what do you have there? You have an environment. I mean, just go ask. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of them. They're really doing some really cool work there. Um, that's really thinking out of the box about the way they do do workplace, you know, economy. But but it gets into this whole fam- family systems approach where there's there's support groups. There's you know there's a food place there. There's a workout place there. There's all these things where people really just don't ever want to leave. <laughs> But, you know, and I raised the question, so how does that relate to the other family? Because you know, it really is becoming another family. And, that, you know, and that's something, of course, they're, they're, they're dealing with. But the point being is that's, that's where we need to be thinking about here. So take family and relate it now to this broader definition of family that involves at least partially the sphere of a workplace that's outside of the home. It could be 
if you were in a household in, in Rome, it could have been a family of 1,200 people. You know, you think of Phoebe, who was, who was the, uh, uh, Phoebe that was the, the head of the household that came to tax. Is it Phoebe or? Priscilla. Yes, that's who it is. So you think of Priscilla. And yeah, now, how, what do you hear here? So if you've made that convert, family systems versus wage labor system, and all the pros and cons of each, maybe. But anyway, if you made that system, now what are you going to see? What's who's a widow? It's the unemployed. But is it the unemployed? Yeah. But the unemployed also without family support. The the, the, the unemployed without. Yeah. And without what what? But it's the unemployed. But what kind of unemployed? Yeah. They can't get work. It might be they're physically disabled, it could be mentally disabled, but they're not able to find work. Yeah. I mean here's a here's a conversation you're gonna have if you're a ministry administrative church. Not can you find a job doing what you ideally want to do. We've got to restore the 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 nobleness of working with your own hands and being self-sufficient insofar as you're possible. We've got to restore that. That, that you know, we've got this very yes, there's so much underneath what I'm saying right now. I just it's just overwhelming me as my head's blowing up right now. But but think about individualism and selfish expressivism and the way that's affected the way you think about vocation and, and, and whatnot. Just think about what I'm saying there. That that your identity is attached to the kind of work you do, not just that I work, but the kind of work you do as an expression of my selfish, of, of my individualism. So you've got someone sitting in here that says, this is always what happens. I'm unemployed. Really? So what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm not willing to work because I'm, I've got my application. I'm going to, I got, I'm looking for this job, whatever this job is. You know, I'm a professor. And that's what I'm going to do. And I don't want to do anything else. And so I'm waiting for that job. And so now I'm, I'm receiving. I'm, I know I'm being very controversial here. Probably. I don't know. I'm old enough to wear it in there. And yeah, I'm going to say, but, and I'm going to say it. I have said it. I said, okay, that's fair. you got to do that. It's hard. But at some point, you're going to have to make a decision. And so far as your resources are concerned, that God, that there's something noble and good about having a job and providing for your family. You know, and that's a good thing. And trust God with this. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely, it's even smart to try to find a job doing what you're most trained and most inclined to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, I'm not, please don't hear me say that, you know, you, you should lose your dream too fast. Or, or, you know, but at some point, you know, you come to a place where You've exhausted everything you can exhaust, including whatever resources you have in your life, to the degree that, for whatever reason, God has spoken in His providence, I don't yet have this job. Now, what are you going to do? At what point do you get on the role of the church? And Paul says, what? Well, to get on the role of the church, you're going to have to be willing to work. And, and it's going to have to be maybe not exactly what you wanted to do. Now that's a that's that's but let me take. Do you think that's loving? Come on, yeah. be honest. Yes. Okay, Lisa, you who wants to go first? Lisa, you said something. I heard somebody I thought I hadn't heard before. Did somebody say somebody there? I want to get everybody to do this. 
I've heard you before. Okay, go ahead. Okay, you can go now. I don't care. Go I'm always listening for people who don't talk. It's a loving thing to do because it is um, enforcing, it's, it's empowering a person to do what he can do with what he has been given. Okay. So there's a sense in which there's another... You're saying that there is another... Um, I mean, as much as... You know, look, we got to be gentle here. I, I want to be gentle, okay? This is not, you know, condemning or anything. I mean, it's just a, it's a, whoever we're talking about is in a hard place. And there's got to be great sensitivity and love and prayer and all that. But at some point, you're asking the question, if you're loving, what is a greater, um, more toxic, dangerous place to be in? Not, you know, and, and, and what we're going to say is there's something fundamental to the human nature that it was made for vocation of some sort. It was made to contribute. And you find that way of contributing. Now, don't get me wrong. It could be a way of contributing. I don't see here dollar bills showing up. In other words, remember, in a family system economy, it's not go find the job where you get the pay the most. I mean, they weren't getting money. It wasn't a wage. I mean, it's really going to blow your mind, but this was not a wage labor system. You didn't go and say, okay, I'm going to go work for my household and get so much money back. No, what you did is you worked in the community of the household, and everyone working together for the good of the household meant that everyone participated in all of its benefits, which, by the way, this is really off the record, but I would love to hear that conversation happening and all this discussion about redistribution of wealth, which I totally agree needs to happen in our society. I know this is off the record, not press and passion. But I don't hear people talking about it in a way that might could be informed here. I.e. the idea of a redistribution that comes through a more communal and, and, and profit sharing scheme of some sort where everyone's part of seen, viewed as part of one entity and therefore everybody benefits from that one entity in a systemic way, not in a voluntary trickle-down way, but in a systemic way. Now, guys, I'm totally off the record, okay? I may be, I'm not in a conference, I don't know what I'm talking about. You hear that? So don't, don't take it, you know, if you, you think I've just said something naive, you're probably right. But I'm just saying, even for the sake of this conversation, imagine now this world where we're not saying, um, Billy Bob, forget your dream about taking care of the sheep because it's just not available to you here. We've got too many sheep herders already or whatever it is that kept them from keeping the sheep. What we really need is for you to take care of the cows. And the person said, but I don't want to take care of the cows. Well, I know, but, but the family needs you to take care of the cows. Maybe there'll be a day when you can take care of the sheep again. But we need you to take care of the cows because we're asking the question, what's good for the common? Now, that gets closer to what he's saying here. See, it's not that you're not working. So you're going to do something. You're going to, this is a person who's not, for whatever reasons, remaining idle. That's what I'm trying to say. That at the end of the day, what is a widow? Well, whatever a widow is, she's not idle. That's one. Uh, did you want to say something, Emily? Uh, no, it's fantastic. Okay. So, so yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting thing going on. But, it, but what's hard is translating it from a family systems economy to a wage labor economy. So it might be, I don't know, you've got to think out of the box a little bit, but what would it look like? It may be that the person does not work and say, look, you know, I've got resources that I can live on, and I'm going to stay active helping the church, helping the community, while I look for that job that I feel I'm called to go to. That's great. They're not idle. That's not wrong. You see, I'm not trying to say 
go work at McDonald's immediately. Yeah, if you if you can sustain, if you can be sustaining yourself, and if you can do this, and if you have reservoir, you know, reservoir or whatever of money or cash that you can work with, do that. But at the heart of this, I'm also going to say, you are in a really dangerous place being idle. We believe there is something inherently toxic about that situation. If you read about the Imago Day in the context of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. There's something that's going to really hurt you. And if you've dealt with people who've been out of jobs for a long time, they will be the first to tell you that was a dark, dark, dark place in my life. And what we need is to make sure that they find something and enable them to see that their worth is still worthy. And, you know, don't get your identity from necessarily one way to work. You're part of a family. The cows matter, too. And if you can help the cow industry of our family while you wait for the right job for the sheep industry, then do it. And I think that's a real important step. Anyway, other thoughts? What else do you see here in the widow? So we're defining the widow. A couple of things. A really destitute person is basically how we want to define it. This is a person that's really destitute. That's the basic generate, uh, definition you get out here. This, this is a destitute person. Destitute of any possibility of anything. Beyond age or ability to support oneself through work, you could call that a disability, i.e. They're, they're at the point where there's nothing else they can do. Without family resources, and you could translate that into other work employment resources outside of a job and the inability to get one. And by inference, given the present wage, labor, again, I'm trying to do this, versus family labor system of economics, someone who lacks sufficient financial support through their work-related wages. A willingness to offer themselves in whatever capacity they can in the service of God, including service within the church and without. And that's important. But whatever else we see throughout this passage is clear that the mercy fund of the church ought not to enable idleness, even as this could be substantiated both by a high regard for humanity and the image of God, I already mentioned that, and the vocational mandate related to our Imago Day, but also for the sake of responsible stewardship of limited resources within the church. Now, out of this, and then it could be argued as well that there might be relative degrees of destitution that correspond to relative degrees of financial support. Now, that's taking it one step further. In other words, give proportional proportional mercy, proportional to their need, etc. Um, this is going to be hard stuff. One of the things that it does say is that the church is responsible for this redistribution of wealth. It does not give up that responsibility to the government. It doesn't say tell her to go to the government and get redistributed. I don't know. I'm not sure I would... Uh, uh, I would. I don't, if what you're saying is that taking unemployment from the government is wrong... No, I'm, I'm saying it's, it, it puts the responsibility on the church. Insofar as she can do it without hurting the whole church. That's right. I mean, there's a limit, though. Yeah. According to the church situation, you know... Um, I just... I just said... I, I, maybe it's my personal yeah. problem, but, you know, I, I, I don't like it when... The church gives up the things that it's supposed to be to be salt and light in the earth to the government. Too quickly. Yeah, the, the idea of mercy should start at home. Yes. It should start with your nuclear family, then your church family, then your. But remember, the government is a valid source of, of family. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. So it's just maybe you're work the concentric circles a little bit. But again, it's always with a view towards the whole, not the individual. So you do got to be careful. I mean, believe me, that's why you need. 
the decisions have to be made uh, with those who are, you know, who know and see the whole picture. I mean, what you give to Billy Bob may be something you just didn't give to Sarah Lee, you know. And so there's a, there's a, you're having to always weigh limited resource. Even I don't care how much money we get, we still have limited resources. And the worldview of the church is much different. Than yeah, the yeah. Of I saw something back here. Yeah, I was just going to kind of push back and say that uh, in terms of care for the poor, it's something that God cares about deeply, and it's not just a mandate to the church, but it's also to individuals, and it's also to the government. And so I would say that because it's so important, God has ordered individuals, church, and governments to all we do with that. I agree. All I was saying is that we don't, the church can't advocate. Absolutely. Well, what happens next is some policies that, that have been approved by the session that we're supposed to be utilizing, and, and this is important for you as potential leaders. So here's the strategic plan and the policy, if you will, that, that's within this greater policy that you see here. Um, and I'm summarizing it basically here. Um, uh, we do receive a special co- uh, annual collection uh, uh, you know, related to mercy, as you know, every year. Um, it will direct its mercy fund to those relative to their level of destitution is determined by an integrated process that's, that's managed by the SLB, destitute relative family resources, destitute relative good faith effort to work, etc. Um, the goal of empowerment versus enablement, we go through this. Uh, uh, preference for service-related assistance, i.e. finances that is tied to service either within or without the church. A preference for supplemental assistance, wherein the church doesn't replace wage labor or family system labor, but supplements it in order for the person to remain in a job worth doing, albeit the job doesn't sufficiently provide the person's need. In other words, what we're saying here is uh, we're not going to penalize someone. This is one of the things that when I was working in Atlanta, and and this was something that a group of, of us, and I was young at the time, didn't have a lot of influence, but we were really trying to, to, to go work with the government and say, guys, Instead of this system of welfare that we have in Atlanta, is there a way to distribute money that would supplement the employer? Now, that gets tricky because the employer could then make use of this. But if you, if this guy has a job, don't don't take away the assistance that you're giving this family to live in this subsidized housing because there's someone who lives there that has a job. <laughs> so find a way to supplement. Let, let's utilize what's happening in the job market and find a better cooperative between government and private industry. And that's part of the problem. It's just there's not enough cooperation, you could argue, between those two entities. But, but in the church sense, we're going to do the same thing. We're not going to come in here with our mercy package and say, well, you're not really destitute because you have a job enough to do this. We're going to say, oh, yeah, we may have to reevaluate your lifestyle, you know, et cetera. By the way, one of the things that this comes into, I don't know if I spell it out here, we were talking about this in our 50-something uh, convocation about um, what, do we, what, what do we do with those our parents who are becoming increasingly destitute for some reason. And the important thing we were talking about here was the importance of, okay, but we got to bring it under a household spirituality and economy. It can't be, I'll do anything for Bob so that she can continue to play in the bridge club downtown. You know, there's got to be bringing Mom into our family, even whether physically, so that Mom can contribute to... The, the, the family system to participate in helping in the household chores, whatever degree that she's able. But if not that, in some way you bring mom into the family system as to what are the values of this family and how do we bring her into that family in a way that the mom can uh, 
embrace the values of this family. We're not, in other words, we're not going to have two households here, and we're separate, and we're going to say. So what I was trying to say, this would tell you is, so this isn't a okay. I'm this family. Family one is going to support family two. It's a system that says family one and two are going to merge, and the values are going to bring being brought together in a manner that that we still don't lose the vision and the and the mission of this family. You see what I'm saying? So it's a family system economy that's being described here. However, we translate into modernity that tra- that wants to not lose what Richard Hayes was talking about. That we see ourselves communally. So, so you know, again, I don't envision this happening, but let's just say, mom, the hypothetical mom, uh, lives in a home that's very, very nice and, and very situ- all the situations, and is in a situation where they need support to stay there. And and I know that many of us would feel very guilty not supporting our moms to be able to stay there if we had the ability to do it. But what's it going to sacrifice for us to do it? Well, is this how God wants to distribute and steward our resources? It may be that we have a very long conversation with mom. Say, mom, we've got it. We want you. are going to be taken care of here. But you're going to be the way it's going to happen is we're going to unify a household to be under one roof, Jesus Christ being Lord. And therefore, the values and distribution of our resources are going to be following that one Lord principle. Yeah, you're going to be brought into the conversation too. It's not like her interest is going to be lost. But there's a way to systematize it. Does that make sense? It's, it's the idea of a community again. Think about a commune, not that I'd want to be a commune, and the way in which decisions are being made, not as two, but one entity as a social construct. What do y'all think of that? You're, you're, you have a cynical smile on your face. I'm not talking. <laughs> you can. It's fair. It's honest. In other words, I'm just stretching, I'm pushing the injury here. All of this belongs to God. Let's, let's put it this way. Let's say that uh, Lisa and I, you know, have, um, you know, we have, a, we have a vision for our life that relates to discipleship and stewardship, etc. Now, what would it mean for me? I might mean I need to do that, but part of that is, let's say, to support my church or to support this ministry or to allow this child to do whatever. There's something there. What we're really saying is we're not going to let one person even if they're a new person added to the family, change the whole values of the family. We're going to have to say, you know, that we're one now. And we're going to have to work together. Now, there'll be some give and take. There'll be some issues. And they may be able to stay in their home and still do that. But they'll understand that there's a, there's a limit. And I, I feel like Christians need to be set free from a guilt-ridden kind of support of anybody, whether it's their kids and necessarily them being in your home or not and how that works, whether it's your family. At some level, there's something bigger here, and it's Jesus Christ and His kingdom that you're supposed to be about doing as a family. What and how would that fit? That's all I'm saying. Maybe that helps with your senses. But you can disagree. It's all right. It's safe. I'm just trying to explore what this would look like. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Um, The thing that... that, uh, the, the thing that I would do last, I've got five minutes, I just, I'm going to take you to another place that really gets specific about sort of the ABCDs, and that's in a PowerPoint. Um, let me find this here. It's in the thing as well. Did y'all see that? Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Well, I think it's in here. Okay, there it is. This is something you've seen before, and I'm going to skip a lot of this right here. So y'all can watch me as I fly through this, because I want to spend five minutes on something at the very end. But you ready? 
here goes. Boom, you know, we're going, oh, it doesn't even do it like I want it, so I'm going to have to do it a different way. Um, now, yeah, I don't like that one. I'm going to get the PowerPoint. PowerPoint's easier. Is that in a PDF form? Yes, it's a PDF form, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my PowerPoint. All right, now I'm going to do the thing here. All right. Voila. And we're just going to go through here. We've already looked at this, so y'all just kind of hold your breath. Lots of stuff. Who are the poor? And this is important. Um, uh, how we define poverty in the church is going to be important here. Uh, it involves a lot of things. A lack of knowledge. Um, oppression by powerful people. Personal sins of the poor. It involves sin. A lack of material resources. But we got to expand. If you're going to be empowerment based, you're going to have to expand the way you think of poverty. And all of these are things you will do to complement that poverty. Right? Maybe they don't know how to do something that would help them. So you teach them. You see what I mean? Um, who are the poor? This is a, a way that Fickert and Colbert talk about in their books. Um, there's a spiritual poverty that it's going to affect different relationships. The relationship to God, the relationship to themselves. Remember, you're dealing with someone who's broken, not just in the relationship with God, but by consequence in relation to themselves. A lack of hope, maybe. A lack of, of personal worth and sense of self-esteem. That's poverty. Um, a relationship with others. And, and the dysfunction at home. The dysfunction between a marriage. The dysfunction with their church. And a relationship with the rest of creation. And the cultural mandate. Do you see what's happening to you right now? Poverty is getting much more holistic as we start to think about it. Um, who are the poor? Uh, poverty of spiritual intimacy. Poverty of being. Poverty of community. Poverty of stewardship. Which based on what we earlier said. Uh, and so we have to have this relationship sort of the building blocks for all human activity. That's part of what I wanted to demonstrate there, that, that whatever, whatever we think of poverty, there is a relational component to it. How I relate to God, how I relate to myself, how I relate to my church, how I relate, there's a relational component. You can't help poverty by ripping it out of its relational system. It's a systemic issue. All this is, you don't have to write it in, I see you kind of writing this, but maybe not, but it's all in line. Uh, so therefore, the need for holistic love, which we've talked about, communion of saints we've talked about, uh, you know, I've looked at passages that deal with mutual, you know, relational poverty issues. Um, again, uh, this interesting, this, this word, this mutual love, that word, this would, this would, beautifully articulate what uh, Hayes has talked about. That word is, is by definition a, a, an ecclesial word, if you look at the way it's used in the New Testament. Uh, Philel love. Um, I will go through this. I'm not going to do this. I want to get to some real specific things. Uh, we talked about the case of the widow, acting severally. You know, this is where you and I, acting severally out in the world, outside of the context of the church, would be good Samaritans. And we should be. Uh, the resident alien model, if you will. We've talked about this already, the notes that we just did. Um, so so uh, here's some of the general rules that I've already summarized, remember, earlier. But here's what I wanted to, to, to slow down on. So what, what is poverty going to look like? Five minutes. It's going to look like relief. Yes, it's going to be the, we need to immediately jump in and do something as a crisis relief issue. You know, you're on the streets if we don't. So that's certainly something that's going to be involved. 
rehabilitation, as soon as the bleeding stops, okay, we're, we're, we're not through. And that's where the church almost 90% of the time walks back out. Right here. It's okay. We got them out of crisis. There's not a screaming, you know, person in our church right now. You know, the, the squeaking wheel has been alleviated. And we're all going, Phew, God, we got out of that mess. But it's just started. And we're going to have to, you know, the thing that I'm already realizing, is we, and I've been realizing it, is we've got, I'm still praying about how we can, the, the resources that we need are human. We've tried to put together an ad hoc committee of people in the church who all say, well, when you need someone like this, I can help. And we need to reinvigorate that and have a very proactive, the idea would be that when someone comes in for mercy, that you have a gatekeeper who analyzes what the need is, and they assemble an ad hoc team who would begin to work with this person in the various areas that they need to be worked with. That's what should be happening here. And then a development, a process of ongoing change that moves all the people involved, both the higher helper and the help, closer to being in right relation with God itself, others, etc. Um, we could do this table discussion, but we don't have time. Uh, here, here's a comment about paternalism. One of the biggest mistakes that North American churches make by far is applying relief in situations in which rehabilitation or development is the appropriate intervention. And which is applying relief in situation. I think that means it doesn't get there. It's not the development. Do not do things. We've already said that. Um, purpose comes in a variety of forms. Resource paternalism, spiritual paternalism, knowledge paternalism, labor paternalism, managerial. In other words, any way where, where there is a one-way arrow. But here's where I wanted to slow down and just let... I want you to go back and look at this because, again, I, I, we're out of time. But just the ABCDs of what's called asset-based community development. And I'm applying this to the way we do community development within the church, not just in a non-church situation. Um, And it's very, very important um, where you identify and mobilize the capacities and skills and resources of the individual community. The idea here is you start with an A. What every single person we meet, your first and most important asset is who? Who's, where, where's the first and most important asset? That person. At the end of the day, there's no one that has more power to help themselves than that person does. You always stop and say, what are your assets? Not just in terms of resource assets, what are your skills? What can you do? Well, when I was a kid, I used to fix lawnmowers. Really? That's a pretty cool skill set you got there. You see, what we, you never skip that A stage. You go on this level, A, B, C, D. Here, I think it's somewhere put out quickly. Let me see if it is. Nope, it didn't. I thought it was. Uh, I just blew it. I'm not going to do that. But you get the sense of that, okay? Thinking more of what it means to be a communal church, the basis of that, what that should look like, and, and focusing then on confession. Um, has anybody read this book before by Bonhoeffer, Life Together? Sort of a classic. Um, Bonhoeffer, you may know, uh, ended up becoming part of the key leader of the Confessing Church that led a movement against Hitler. Um, this book was written in the context of a seminary that he led, so he's very much he's living in community when he's writing this. Um, there are two sections. I put the first chapter online um, that you had a chance to read. And then I just couldn't resist, so I also, there's two handouts. I included the last chapter as a handout in the back called Confession and Communion. Um, and we're going to read some snippets out of that as well, because there are just some really great gems there about what our community can look like. Um, 
But first, we're going to start on this handout, uh, which are just notes of mine from the first chapter. And he's he's thinking about what is what is a Christian community look like, what is the church called to be. And, and one, I think, defining way to summarize this chapter is we are defined by the objective word of Christ. Uh, we are defined by what God has declared us to be in Christ. The word, capital W, uh, is what defines us. That's who we are individually and corporately. So we're going to look at what that means. And I'm just going to walk through these key sections. Please please interrupt if if, uh, we want to explore some other implications. Um, The first, just real briefly, this was sort of his introduction. He, He talked about it being in the midst of enemies. What he means by that is because we are held together solely in Jesus Christ, we are dispersed among unbelievers. We're not creating a different enclave. We're not uh, creating a holy huddle. We are in the world um, in the midst of enemies, as he put it. And he mentions also this uh, just accounts of exiles, accounts of people who don't have Christian community and how much they yearn to find it as this visible anticipation of the last things where we um, are clinging to one another. But that itself is a... um, uh, a sign of the gracious presence of God. Um, but really what I want to jump to is number two, where he, he titles this section, Through and in Jesus Christ. This is how we meet each other. Right? And, and those words are carefully chosen. Um, so to think very specifically about what does it mean to meet each other through and in Jesus Christ. Um, and he's got three sections under here. One is the Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. That may seem very abstract. So what does he mean by that? It's because he lives, he being the Christian, he or she, lives by the pronouncement of the word declaring him not guilty in Christ. That pronouncement, the word, only comes from outside. All right, Alien righteousness, this is a term from Luther. Bonhoeffer's a Lutheran. Um, Alien meaning outside, extrinsic, external. It's the righteousness that you have that's laid on top of you like clothing that declares you to be something apart from the change that is going to flow from that. Right. So if you think back to your systematic theology, this is the justification that's true of you that is distinct but never separate from sanctification. That is declared from outside. So one way, one thing that he explores later on is that this word is communicated through the mouths of others and the witness of the brothers. So the Christian needs the other to speak the word again and again. <clears throat> the goal of all Christian community is to meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. You, I'm sure, have, have had experiences like this where you can tell yourself or you can read scripture all you want, but he is... He's rightfully, I think, suspicious of the power of that. The, the power in a brother or sister declaring to you what is true is much more powerful and needed. Right? Um, another way uh, that he explains this is a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. Not. So, so being in Christian community means we're not coming together because of the uh, cultural things that we share, the worldly things that we share. Although we do come together for those reasons, that's not what makes it Christian, right? We come together only through Jesus Christ. 
So without Christ, we are at enmity with God and with each other. Our ego would get in the way otherwise, but in Christ we can live with each other in peace. So if we come together for reasons that are outside of Christ, he's going to just call that a, that's a worldly fellowship. That's a human reality that he talks about later versus a spiritual one. You don't need Jesus in those situations to have that sort of fellowship or unity or friendship or community, right? And so either the ego is going to allow you to to engage one another because you're both sports fans or whatever, or the ego is going to get in the way because you don't have a bridge to, to engage with someone who's not a sports fan, right? Here, Christ is the basis through whom we meet with the other person. And then this is fleshed out uh, in understanding that in Jesus Christ is how we meet each other. So he's got some beautiful passages here as well. Now we are in him, where he is, there we are too, in the incarnation, on the cross, and in his resurrection. Therefore we are also with one another for eternity. That gives us a different shape, a different outlook on our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We're a family that we can't just escape after a few... We can't move out when we turn 18. Um, uh, Lewis has that famous line, right? You never meet a mere mortal. Uh, you're, you're encountering someone you're going to spend eternity with. Um, uh, look at that bold quote at the, at the bottom. Or no, number four. Through Jesus Christ, the other becomes my brother. Not just the extra holy ones but all who are in Christ because of what Christ has done. This is a good example of why it's so important that it's the extrinsic word that defines who we are. So regardless of the spiritual state of that brother or sister, right, the declaration of the word of Christ upon that person is still true. And so that does not discount the, the love that we owe Right, to that person. Um, the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede, the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. That's another, I think, great uh, description of what we've been talking about all day, the communal church being the place where Jesus Christ is formed is seen, is manifested. Um, does anybody want to jump in now? We're going to get, we're going to try to get more practical after this. But that's really the foundation um, of where he's going to go after that. Nothing too controversial, I don't think. Um, but again, the most helpful part being the, the objective word of Christ's righteousness upon us. All right, the next section. This is, this is also where um, he gets very quotable about, really about dreamers. And, and I don't know if this is a generational thing, because at first it's, it's a little knock to me, because me and I think my, my generation, like we want to be dreamers, right? We have these great visions of what community should be, and um, we're going to be very passionate, and he wants to... Uh, totally disrupt that because that's usually filled with a bunch of idols. Um, that's filled with a bunch of idolatry and it's not filled with the reality of the world now. It's not filled with who your brother and sister are in the flesh now. Right? 
Um, so only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what He does give us daily. God hates visionary dreaming. Now that has to be... I put, I put that there intentionally. Where did you... <laughs> uh, this is on the second page, the first quote. Now, obviously, there has to be a, that's a context, right? It's not saying we don't have visionary dreaming as far as, like, we just got this amazing vision of the church in New Haven, right? What does it mean to actually do mercy in all these different contexts? That's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about, do you think? How do you understand this, whether you read the chapter or not? What's the danger here? I think he's, I, I think he's um, trying to short-circuit cycle of disillusionment, like you have this yeah. you have this vision of how it's going to be, and it's always messy, it's yeah. part of this point, yeah. and if you encounter that and then give up, yeah. or are unduly discouraged, then <laughs> yeah. you've uh, you've lost something here, he's trying to help you not do that. Yeah, yeah, and we should expect disillusionment, because if, if our community is defined by the objective word in Christ, then of course you're going to encounter sinners. And so to come to a community not expecting that is actually discounting the basis of your unity, which is going to be what Christ did, not who the brother is anyway. Right? There are other implications. I was talking to a student this week who's, who's graduating. He's, he's asking me about getting involved in church. And he's like, you know, I, I could probably help with financial stuff. And, you know, he's a finance guy, blah, blah, blah. And it was great. He's being intentional. Um, but I also said, you also need to come to a church not knowing what you're going to do there. Like you don't go to a church having an agenda saying, this is this is what my gift is, this is what I can do. Come rather seeing how you can fill the need. Right? Um, it's very tempting to think we, we, we know how to fix that, that issue. Right? So look at this next quote. Is not the sinning brother still a brother? With who I too stand under the word of Christ, will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God and Jesus Christ. Thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary. So he's, not, so he's saying, not only expect disillusionment, but when you encounter it, that becomes a reason to see the grace of God in Christ. That's the place where you can now see God at work, and the gospel is going to be more magnified at that moment. Right? than another. This is, this is really a Christian's approach just to sin in general, is that we don't have to be led to despair or hopelessness. We can be led now to thankfulness that God actually provided for that. That he forgives our brother in that. We get to see, alright, what does that mean? He forgives him, and now he's going to bring him out of that. And conquer it. Christian community is like the Christian sanctification. It is a gift of God which we cannot claim. What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God, just as the Christian should not be constantly feeling his spiritual pulse, so too the Christian community has not been given to us by God for us to be constantly taking its temperature. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize, it is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So what does this make you guys think of? Anything? Any any Practical implications. What's the argument against? 
But the dangerous he's, he's arguing against out of this. Anything else? A little, like, navel-gazing. Yeah, okay. What? It's a good word. Navel-gazing. <laughs> like you're looking inward. <laughs> into your navel. Always taking, always taking a temperature. Well, it's a little bit against self-righteousness in a way, too, but we can do it. We can achieve it. Uh-huh. That realization aspect. Uh-huh. We're going to make this happen. Right. No. It's a gift that's been given to us. We just have to be in it and live in it. Right. Right. We get to participate in what Christ has accomplished. And it's not... It's not when... It is. It's not when. So, like, it's really easy to say, oh, we'll have really awesome community once we have churches and all these aspects of New Haven. We'll have really awesome community when, or that'll be a, that'll be the Christian community when, uh, and I can imagine, I mean, or in any given moment, I think to be able to just like have, to, to, to rest in sort of mm-hmm. God's providence. Yeah, I, I, but I also don't want to, I don't want us to read this and say, all right, let's chill. All right. Like, you, you're going to relax, because he's, he's fighting the idols, but it's also... It also should give us incredible boldness to say, look, this is actually already accomplished. What do we have to fear in going out and seeing it happen? Does that make sense? Or if it's hard, then it's a good thing. If something is hitting the fan, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. What do you expect? It's good. Yeah. Yeah. It should hit the fan if we're going to see the gospel. That's the only way it's going to do it, because it's going to deal with sin. Half hand. The, the goal of uh, community is, is uh, part and parcel with the, the goal, you know, the, the Great Commission. It's, it's not, they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's important. Yeah, absolutely. You mean, it, what? It, you, you can't, can't, you can't like, accomplish the Great Commission. Right. This is it. Right. You know. Right. We're not accomplishing the Great Commission if we're not. Yeah. You can't stare at your navel. Right. 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 And if the Great Commission is church planning, this is the way it's going to look like a lot of times. All right, this next section will help us as a, as a transition to, to chapter 5 that I included. Um, a spiritual, not a human reality. Um, I, let me just read the, the, the quote where there's the bold line down, down at the bottom, just to make sure we get to that, some other stuff. Uh, he's talking about uh, the the access we have to one another, the, the fellowship and the relationship we have to one another, being through Jesus Christ, being being um, only because of the Word, and so he's he's well. I'll just read it. I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, coerce, or and dominate him with my love. The other person needs to retain his independence of me. To be loved for what he is as one for whom Christ became man. Because Christ has long since acted decisively for my brothers, before I can begin to act, I must leave him his freedom to be Christ's. I must meet him only as the person that he already is in Christ's eyes. So thinking about empowerment just before, this is, this is another way to consider it, that empowerment is, is trying to enable him to... Um, fully live into what Christ has made him, right? You, you, 
He's trapped. He's somehow not living out the freedom that Christ has purchased for him. How can we help him in that? Does that make sense? Rather than, he's contrasting it with like an erotic or a power love, which is more controlling, uh, all-encompassing. We had an agenda. Paternalistic. Yes, thank you. Um, I don't know. Can anybody help me? Of paternalistic love? Or just that quote of um, coercing, dominating with love. I don't know. I mean, I think he's. I think he's trying to say any any way that we try to meet someone or get them to an agenda that's not Christ's. Guilt somebody into being the uh, mercy coordinator for your community. Are you speaking out of experience? Well, I just, I, I, as we're just forming one, I'm trying to be very, yeah, not doing that. Yeah, you know. But how do you do that? With, but also want to challenge a brother yeah. and step up. It's it's a difficult line to to try. Yeah, yeah. I think thinking about the emphasis on the declarative word, one aspect is simply declaring what is true of you. If we're talking to a brother in Christ. This is what's true of you, right? Um, looking at your life and whether you can handle this commitment, right? But also saying, are, is your prior, are your priorities straight? Do you, um, what do you have to fear if you're trying to take this mercy coordinator commitment? And, and, leaving, and leaving room for, for yourself to be wrong. Leave room for yourself to be wrong and, and trying to take yourself almost totally out of it as much as you can because right. you are simply a, a vehicle of declaring yeah. I'm Christ. So, so remember, this is all about how we are becoming one in Christ, through Christ. And so I think about this a lot just in teaching and preaching is that it's, as l- least personal as it can get, the better. We are trying to steward, we are trying to participate in what Christ is doing. You know, I think this is a very uh, important conversation that we're having right now, especially anyone here that's, about the, the, that's aspiring to the office of overseer, aspiring to the office of, of, of a shepherd, and that is that, you know, um, well, I just like the fact that we're working some tensions right now. Yeah. Because the fact is, a shepherd will need to rebuke and correct. Yeah. And, and that will make people feel good. Yeah. I mean, you, what, else, what else can you say about that? Right, I mean, right. So it, you cannot measure what you say based on how the other person's going to feel. Right. Because the way the other person feels will be informed by a lot of worldviews mm-hmm. and a lot of issues that may be inappropriately applied to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a real message. But what I think you're, but so on the one hand, so you go, you're, you're, you're challenging someone to get involved in a church and to, and you're discipling them to be a communal person, right. instead of the interest of the whole as they think about their their way of life. Uh, I mean, you can't disciple people and not get into their way of life. Right. right. You know how you spend your money, how you spend your time. Right. You know how you make decisions. That's discipleship stuff. Right. Discipline. And you're not doing much discipleship if you don't challenge that stuff. Yeah. And some help. But somehow you're right. I think what we're sensing though is somewhere there's a line, and there is a line where you're able to say, listen. You know, this is an opportunity for you to consider, let's say if you're talking about this mercy person, um, here's the gifts that you bring, here's the needs of the church, and here are some possible uh, 
in listening to you, here are some things that I want to challenge you about. I hear you making this argument. I hear you thinking this way. I want to challenge that. I want to challenge that. I want to challenge that. But do it with the Word of God. You You do it with the Word of God. Do it with the Word of God. But you still leave it at the level of a concept. Because at the end of the day, where I think you do want to have to to stop short of doing, is saying, I believe God wants you, I am telling you, Right. And to be obedient to Christ, you will be the mercy coordinator. Right. That's what they've lost. You can't say that. They've lost their independence as their and, own. And you went beyond Scripture, because the right. Scripture may be true insofar as you've, you've raised many very important spiritual issues that Scripture speaks to. Right. And and yes, the person may walk away feeling guilty or whatever. You, I mean, you, you do everything you can do to talk about the gospel, of course. Right. Da, 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 da. I don't mean right. to suggest we never leave the gospel out of it. But at the end of the day, they're going to be uncomfortable with you next time they see you. Yeah. Possibly. I mean, you can do everything you can do to try to do that. I mean, those of you who have been in a relationship like that, you know, I may say things that, come on now, that it's not personal. Hey, you want to go have a beer afterwards? You know, all that. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, I just can't emphasize enough, to be a good elder, you know, you, you've, got, you've got to be willing not to be liked all the time. Yeah. You've got to be willing to be misunderstood sometimes. Yeah. I, I mean, you just do. And I don't see many ministries that are very successful with people who don't have the courage at some level be that as a shepherd um, I must make my first priority is not to be liked, not to be their friend if right. I mean my friend that we feel comfortable around each other right. I may have to do say things that are uncomfortable and I pray God that we can get beyond that in the gospel right. and it's not personal and there's a lot you can do to do that but at the end of the day you're just not going to be worth your grain of salt if right. all you're worrying about is pleasing them. Right. So that's where the issue, somewhere there's a, well, you can't be men pleasers and be a good elder. On the other hand, there is, I can't be Lord of someone's conscience and be yeah. a good elder either. Right. You can't take their ability to consent away from them. Yeah. I think right. on that side. Absolutely. They have to be able and to have like that someone ability. said, you've got to recognize that while I see this as a really good inference, right. and this is where our regular principle is really helpful here, right. I can't say it's a necessary inference. Right. And I could therefore be making a leap that that is just wrong. And I've got to be humble to know that. Right. That even if it's my opinion, that I think at the end of the day, you know, there's no way any of us can possibly understand all the circumstances of a person's life. Mm-hmm. It, it could be just a an emotional thing going on here that would not be detri- that would be detrimental to this person to be a mercy coordinator. Mm-hmm. And we just can't go there. We don't know all that. Right. Only God does. So it's right. hypothetical though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we asked you to be the first coordinator, did we? <laughs> We're asking you now. <laughs> Have you considered that? <laughs> All right. Um, and right out of that, I was just going to say, please. I love the quote that came right out that really convicted me, but I just liked it. Okay. Right after this section. Thus, this spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother. Mm. more than to a brother about Christ. Mm. So yes, we're to speak Christ to them in the truth, but we're also supposed to be praying mm. even more yeah. for them, with them, about this. You know, mm. I don't do that. I yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That takes us out of it, too. I think right. bo- both sides also are meant to take us out of it because we are simply stewards of what Christ is doing, yeah, it's, it's, to participate in what he's doing. That's where our, our church model, our Presbyterian model, really is great because there's tons of prayer and deliberation mm. and consultation of each other and God's word mm. before you say the first word. Mm. And that's beautiful. Mm. 
Hmm. By the time you're there, yeah, it's all about the cause of Christ. Yeah. All right, I want to move to this final chapter, which I just printed out for you. Uh, this is this is along the same lines, but now this is about getting into each other's lives and confessing with one another and the importance of doing that. All right. Um, and I'm just going to read some sections, and then we'll just deliberate, all right? Um, so I'm on the first page, 110, Confession and Communion. I'm going to read the first two paragraphs. Confess your faults to one another. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship, and he's using that as like a pejorative term, the self-righteous, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. But it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand that it confronts us with the truth and says, You are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. My son, give me thine heart. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go online to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. He loves the sinner but he hates sin. Um, this is meant to take the mask off why we don't confess one to another. Um, why is it so hard to, to do that? Um, you can dare to be a sinner, which, which obviously sounds very provocative, but it, one, one way is that he's saying... You can actually be yourself in your sin. Why? Not because that's okay, but that it's because that's the person who Christ died for. Right? You're not going to be able to see what Christ wants to do with you or your brother. Right? If you're trying to get into someone's life, you want to see them as a sinner. If you're trying to help them and disciple them, you want to see them as a sinner. You don't just want to see them as the pious person. Um... Any other comments on this section? It almost reminds me of uh, this part in the Chronicles of Narnia with Eustace uh, as the dragon, and Aslan comes to him, and does anyone know what I'm about? Yeah. <laughs> um, and Aslan says to him, you have to take off what's on, what you've covered yourself mm. with. Mm. And so he starts scraping off the scales and goes in to try to get into the bath and he says no you still haven't done it so he keeps trying to take off his scales so that he can be human again and then Adlin says you're going to have to let me undress you and he takes his claw and you know it describes as like if you know, the cut felt like it went all the way to my heart and you know only the 
Christ figure was able to actually undress him of all the masks and things that he had put on. And so a lot of what the language that he was using is that God wants to see you without a mask. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And so it just made me think of that portion. And also use this as a great reminder to be courageous in fighting sin in your brother and sister and realizing how lonely it is for other people to be stuck in their sin. And if you don't give them an occasion to confess and then to hear the forgiveness from you, remember it's the objective word that they need to hear, then they're going to be lonely and they're going to be stuck and it's not going to be dealt with. All right, let's go to the next page, 112. I want to read the paragraph under Breaking Through to Community. To the end of the page. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself that withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother... The last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God. And he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. Which is a really powerful description of probably something you all have felt of just confessing a sin to someone else. Um, And if we're aspiring to be leaders, then it also means to to put ourselves in places where someone can do that. Right? They're, what did it say? Dismantling the last stronghold of self-justification. He, he, he's ta- you're taking away the reason that they had to self-justify now because they don't have to do it anymore. They let go. Right? That's what happens when you confess it to someone. Um, all right, let's let go to... Um, I got one more, I think one more, maybe two. Two more readings, all right. You're with me, all right? We can keep reading, right? All right, one, go to 115, starts with breaking through to certainty. He's going to convict us now, if he hasn't already. Um, In confession, a man breaks through to certainty. Why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother? God is holy and sinless. He is a just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother is sinful as we are. He knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than to the holy God? But if we do, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God. Whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. And it's not the reason, perhaps, for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness and not a real forgiveness. Self-forgiveness can never lead to a breach with sin. This can be accomplished only by the judging and pardoning word of God itself. And remember when he, reads, when he says word, he's meaning 
outside, someone speaking the word to you. Um, do you guys agree that it is harder to confess to a brother or sister than it is to God? That really unmasks how we are man-pleasers, doesn't it? If we say we're confessing to God, we're yeah, really just like saying it to ourselves. Because if we're really confessing to God, that should give us a much deeper conviction than even confessing to someone else. I think it also kind of shows that in many ways we think of God as an impersonal force. Yeah. More than yeah. a personal God. Yeah. We can pray to an impersonal force. Right. Right. Of course. Right. What's the big deal? All right, let me do the one last reading, and then we'll, we'll get some more discussion going in the last five minutes. Uh, this is the final page, 118, to whom confess. And this, again, I think really empowers us to not only confess to one another, but to um, uh, know that we can deal with other people's sin. We can hear other people's confession. Um, all right, to whom shall we make confession? According to Jesus' promise, every Christian brother can hear the confession of another, but will he understand May he not be so far above us in his Christian life that he would only turn away from us with no understanding of our personal sins. This is, I know this is a lot of what people think. Um, uh, it's a good reminder to remember that if you are a leader in the church, people will automatically, even if they haven't met you, they will automatically assume they can't be real to you and they can't confess their sins to you. And if they do, you'll be scared or you'll judge them. They'll, they will automatically do that, no matter what. So you can't. We can never forget that. Um, anybody who, believe, who lives beneath the cross and who has discerned in the cross of Jesus the utter wickedness of all men and of his own heart will find there is no sin that can ever be alien to him. Anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of a brother. Looking at the cross of Jesus, he knows the human heart. He knows how utterly lost it is in sin and weakness, how it goes astray in the ways of sin. And he also knows that it is accepted in grace and mercy. Only the brother under the cross can hear a confession. It is not experience of life, so again, taking the personal out of this from David's comment earlier, but experience of the cross that makes one a worthy hearer of confessions. The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of men. And so it, is also, so it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. I'm going to stop there. So, I mean, I just find this very empowering to a Christian. It's very empowering to me, who's pastoring. I've been ordained for four and a half years. I don't have a lot of life experience to go on. But it's completely liberating to realize that's not what I'm preaching out of. 
right? That's not what I'm teaching out of or counseling out of. It's not my life experience. It's it's this. And and the one thing I've been I've been able to see this in my life is that um, I'm really not surprised by deep sin or, or deep tragedy in someone's life. And and for some reason God God has worked out of me because I haven't had myself uh, encountered much terrible tragedy or trouble, right? And so it's not because of my experience that I can hear it and, and counsel someone through it or whatever. It's really simply because of the cross. That sin shouldn't surprise us. And so we shouldn't be afraid to, to hear someone sin. And we shouldn't think that we are too weak or not knowledgeable enough or not smart enough to counsel someone or to, to speak to someone who really is in dark sin. No, if we know the cross of Christ... We are. We know it. Not sure. That doesn't like obviously that needs to be qualified. But to to empower us to realize, no, we can be in people's life because we know the crux of the matter. No pun intended. You know, I think that's such a great point. It relates to your previous point. Um, it really is important that all of I think that all of this that we're talking about. I mean, he's writing in a deeply communal context here. And if we were in, if it was the culture, I mean, we talk a lot about the gospel culture. Mm. What, what is a gospel culture in a church? Well, it's a church where people, if you look at the bullets that we even put on our website where we talk about gospel centered, and here would what, this is what a church would look like if its culture is transformed by the gospel. Mm-hmm. And one of those is a, it's, a, it's a church, how do I say it, feel, where people feel comfortable confessing sins to one another. So it's going to be a lot easier. <laughs> to confront people in areas of sin if they are living in a culture that is self-critical and capable of confessing our own corporate mm-hmm. and individual sins. Mm-hmm. You know, and so whether it's we as pastors being comfortable in confessing sins, whether it's we as leaders, whether it's we as just Christians, you know, there's something, I mean, there's always a line, there's always a ditch where we get so comfortable confessing sin as if sin is really not, a, you know, odious to God. Right. But in the genuine and contrite and, and remorseful confession of sins one to another, but in a way that acknowledges, well, in some ways, I, I wasn't planning on it, but I kind of confessed it today, right? I mean, I really confess in front of you the sin and my selfishness in this lady that I met, right? And... And I don't know, I hope it was, you know, you have to judge me, I guess, but certainly I could have confessed it as if, you know, um, you know, we're gospel believers here, it doesn't matter, you know, everything's, everything's, no, I mean, there needs to be genuine remorse and sadness, mm-hmm. a genuine sense of gravitas that what I've done has hurt God, it's hurt this woman, it hurt my wife, it hurt me, mm-hmm. you know, it was a, it was bad, so I'll just try to do it on myself. But if we don't do that, and if, it, and if we're not comfortable doing that, because we do have the grace of the gospel, mm-hmm. so that I can do that and still walk away from you intact, and you can walk away from me intact, as in not losing our identity, then how would we expect someone to, if we if we as leaders come to them and, and we're having to rebuke or correct or, you know, whatever, gently, you know, whatever, how can we expect them right. to even trust that, that, that this relationship is still intact? Except that we live in a culture. So everything, you know, everything's, you know, Newbegin, we're going to talk about this next time with me, but, but Newbegin talks about the church as the hermeneutic of the gospel. And um, I think that's what he means. That yeah. if we're not ourselves living the gospel, and that includes 
modeling how to confess sin and appropriate the gospel to our lives, right. but not in a you know flippant way. Then that when we come to that person and talk about sin in their life, hopefully they they have heard us confess. Right. Hopefully they're swimming in a culture that confesses, and they go, "Gosh, in this place to be a sinner is not." a threat to my acceptance. Right. And it's not a threat to my being loved and cared for and respected. Mm. That in this culture, people could actually be honest about their sins and not fear condemnation. Right. Because of the gospel. Right. So I do think yeah. that's part of the, the, the challenge for us as leaders. Absolutely. And that is so different from the moralistic context of the church. Right. Where leaders feel like they've got to hide their sins in order to be respected right. and to be approved of. Now granted there there does need to be discretion about when and how you confess sins. Right. You know, you do need to be aware that not everyone's where they are. You don't so as leaders there's a line somewhere right. about where and how and what context you confess sins. But I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah, I remember talking to a to a woman who on a team and she had she knew there was a team member who was a little older who was more of a serious Christian. And I said, why why don't you Confess to her. Why don't you talk to her? Be, you know, and she said, "Well, she wouldn't understand. You know, she she doesn't struggle with this type of stuff." And so, it's the exact opposite of what the model of a, a Christian should be—the one who is more aware of our sin, not less. We should have no reason to write off our sins if they don't matter, because we see how serious it is on the cross, right? And we also have every reason to be willing to be honest. And to be clear, just because you don't, sh- maybe you haven't committed adultery against your husband or wife, right? And, this, and so maybe I won't be able to understand that, if you mean by that. So to that person who says that, I would hope that someone would say that to her or him. Yeah, but they do sin, and sin horribly. Right. So trust them right. that they don't have to have sinned in adultery right. to not understand the fear of condemnation regarding sin, and that being set free from the grace of the gospel. Absolutely. Anybody else? This is more of an exhortation to confess your sins one to another rather than a mandate. Or, or is it both or how do you see it? Because you did say to be regulative in some way. You know, you got to pick and choose and when. Yeah. Well, it's a, I think it's a mandate in general as far as you can't, you can't be in Christian community without finding the place to confess your sins. Or at least to one other. Or to, to other person. Yeah. It's not a mandate to always do the whole list out loud on Sunday morning. To get to your question, though, you you noticed that I did try to create balance. I I think... I didn't see that here, but I heard it there. Yeah, and and I would assume it there, honestly. But but there is a... But I guess I am afraid, I'll just be honest, that I can easily hide under the fact that, okay, it's true, it might choke someone to hear their pastor confess certain sins without the context that they would need to have that relates to the gospel, etc. And it's true, let's don't be let's don't be, you know, wrong about it. The Bible <laughs> makes it very clear that there are certain moral there's a moral uh, there's a level of, of, of moral uh, sanctification that is required to be an officer. So you hear the tension in the Bible. On the one hand, be careful that if you were to confess sins, would a person be able to hear it and, and hear the truth about that sin? And that can go both ways. Could it be that, you say, I don't know how to say this real quickly, but it's the idea that there are some contexts where we confess our sins to certain people that have reason to know it because I am accountable to them. So just 
to give, give the illustration I'm point out, the session in the last year and a half, two years, have heard several confessions of sin where they were appropriately confessed to pastors, pastors appropriately said, you need to bring this to the church, you need to receive the absolution that only the church can give, and they have come before the session, they have confessed their sins of X, and they have received the censure of the church, whatever that was, whether it was just a rebuke, whether it was a suspension, whether it was whatever, but they received it, and hopefully in a very deeply gospel-centered way, and I can tell you that that's how it was done. Why wouldn't I have said, go to the church and confess that publicly? Because it's not for everyone to know every sin of our life because there's not a responsibility to that sin. So I think we don't want to give the false... If you're reading that, I don't think you're right. We don't want to say, no, there's an appropriate place for certain types of sins to be confessed. Typically, the rule that we use, biblically, is to the degree that it's notorious. To the degree that it has become communal, it is confessed. But you confess it in in the context of where it affects people's lives. So so there's certain things that, yeah, I don't think we are in com- commanded to walk up one day in our prayers during our, our church and confess certain sins, because there is a collateral damage that comes with that that might be greater than you think, in terms of how that might affect those, you, you know, the other people involved in your sin, maybe, and how, how that might diminish them, how that might diminish the opportunity for someone sitting over there who hasn't the context of of being a part of, they might interpret what you're saying in a way that would be detrimental to their souls because they are not mature enough to understand the gospel. And, and so there's a, there, but I think generally what we're saying though is that I suspect there are ways that we can even look for opportunities as leaders to show the contrition and the humility of confession sins one to another and appropriating the gospel to ourselves so that they see someone modeling to them wow, what he said really is ugly. I mean, I mean again, I, I didn't plan this, but I, I mean, really, what I just confessed to y'all earlier really is ugly. I'm embarrassed about it. I think most of y'all would have handled it differently, to be honest. Um, so there's a place for that, I suspect. But, but I also know that I'm talking to a group of people here that uh, I think knows the gospel and that can see me walk away from it without... I, I don't think you sense that I'm over here fearing God's wrath and condemnation when I die because of it either. <laughs> yeah. So there's, this, is a, this, is a, this is a touchy situation, but I hope that answers it. Both yeah, no, that's one This is what we should be talking about, stuff yeah. like this, guys. We're talking yeah. about you being leaders, really, not abstractly. And mm-hmm. is there a place for you to confess sins? And we're going to say, yeah, there is. Mm-hmm. But it, it'll be in different spheres, in different contexts, and... And, you know, even from the pulpit, sometimes it'll come out. You know, that, okay, I'll confess that this is something I struggle with. And, and helping to create a content, a culture where other yes. people can confess to you. And that's that's, that's really the key. Points out to me something we've been talking about quite a lot, and that is the need for discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, yes. And it's got to get life on life, local, person to person, small group ministries. Yeah. That's, that's where it comes down. That's where it starts. And it's where it's the real power. Yeah. I mean, I still look back. It, it, you know, again, I hope I've had some effect here, but but I look back in the years when I was able to be more involved in this one-on-one, life-on-life discipleship and things, and the impact that you have from that is so profound and long-term. You know, and yeah. Yeah. Lisa, you have something? Uh, well, what's difficult sometimes is when you are in a small group context, and you know really sweet fellowship, sweet confession, but sometimes 
when a person confesses something that is not appropriate to be hearing, mm-hmm. and just what do you do? And why wouldn't it be appropriate? Would give, you don't have to be specific. But a, marriage, a marriage issue. So, and it's all women, and yeah. we're hearing struggles. One side. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's hard to know because they want to be encouraged. I don't know. I think the marriage one's a hard one. But I think to that point... You want to know that that, that she's already talked to the husband about it. This is one way that we're going to deal with it. And let's say they have. And and I need support of my women in the small group to help us, to make sure that she's just not... I think that's a great example. Very subtly, it can be a confession. But embedded within the confession is something about, say, your husband that... We would not respect, or we would not, you know. Because an accusation. Well, it could be an accusation. It could even be something that's <clears throat> sinful. You're, you're attracted to another woman, and somewhere it's, it's subtly implying that I'm not satisfied with the woman that I'm married to, for whatever reason. And yeah, that's that's to me a, you know, you just kind of thrown your husband or your wife under the bus, yeah. even if it's in a way that says, yeah. But, you know, yeah, I think we've got to be really listening to this stuff as leaders in a small, leading small groups and asking the question, now, does this in any way, shape, or form have a collateral damage in the way in which we would view anyone else other than you, one? <coughs> does it have a collateral negative gossipy kind of thing about someone else that's brought into the sin? Or two, is it appropriate, is this person confessing something that that um, it's really is, is beyond the capacity of this group. to pr- this. So you can be general or specific, right? There's a certain level of maturity that is required the more specific you get. Someone who, can, who, who hopefully has a spiritual maturity to discern what's happening in this situation. So I think, Lisa, to your point, I think you, you generally would say, look, keep it, keep it very, very general. <laughs> Keep it very focused on what is your personal struggle without, you know, being uh, in any way alluding to something that could be related to another person, you know. Keep the other person, you know, you can do that. I mean, even if it's a marriage struggle, you can say, I'm struggling with a certain person in my life, and please pray for me, because uh, I have sinful thoughts and sensual desires. Now, that's something that would never probably equate to bringing someone into it in a negative way. God knows. That's the point. God knows who you're praying about. And, and so we can encourage our group. So that would be an example. But yeah, I think it's a great... I, mean, I appreciate, Lisa, your question, because let's, let's do get beyond abstract here, guys. Yeah, right. This, yeah. Is, this happens every day in our groups. Right. It's very freeing, and it really helps with absolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like you said here, it's right on mm-hmm. to, to confess your sins. Well, and like, some of what you just said is, be careful whose sins you're confessing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or whose weaknesses? Exactly. It's going to be yours, but you're not doing this one. That whole bless her heart thing, you know? Bless her. Bless her. I appreciate you saying, you know, you know, be careful whose sins you're, you're confessing. Yeah. But I won't even go beyond that and say, be careful <coughs> whose weaknesses you're confessing. It's agreed. You yeah. say, yeah, I know you are. And so it's very subtly. I just have lost my appreciation for your spouse. Because I'm exactly. praying, God, help me be patient with my wife or husband who, who struggles with uh, something that's totally 
non-sinful. It's just something that's weak. Yeah, it's the fine line between confession and yeah. gossip. Yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. Prayer question. And honestly, you have to ask yes. that question. You know, and that's where the golden rule helps. And this is another way to just ask yourself the question. The golden rule. If you were your husband or your wife, would you want this to be said? Or if they were in the room, would you say it differently? Yeah. yeah. yeah just, does your confession put anyone else besides yourself in a bad way? Yeah. Well, where do you, who do you go to when it's a real legitimate... Well, I think that's where you have the, the, the leadership structure of a church. That you, you know, if you're their small group leader, maybe you go to probably that small group leader and talk about it if you feel this is a person who shows the, the maturity to do that. If you don't, you go to someone next, you know, but there is a bit of a, I don't want to call it a chain of command, a chain of the shepherding. I mean, it's working Matthew 16 yes. a little bit, even if, it, even if it's not having rebuked them in a sin, even if they're already repentant, yeah. you're still one-to-one and then... Mm-hmm. then. You know, at some level, that's why we have pastors, hopefully, that, that, that are available, and elders and, and WLB members who are available, but all of those, you're talking about a, a level of training and a level of, of ability and, you know. And I'm throwing out examples. And, and a level. Not necessarily that I've had. I don't want y'all to think yeah. Oh, we already know who you're talking about. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I, I don't appreciate you putting our marriage out. <laughs> <laughs> but bringing it, bringing it to other people, Lisa, in that context too, bringing it to people who aren't as personally invested is very helpful. They're, they're going to be able to see it from a more objective but gospel standpoint. I would say work the leader. I mean, generally, and I agree with what you're right. saying, Matthew 18, I think that next step should be to someone who's been approved as a leader. This is not just anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll really yeah. accountable. Yeah, they, have, they, they, they think, so yeah, when you go to Matthew 18, so someone's come to you, the small group leader, whoever, yeah, but if you feel that there needs to be a, another level brought into it, I would advise you to take it to someone who has been who is formally accountable to the church as a spiritual shepherd of this church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, we, we include in that different types, but yeah. And I would probably say if appropriate, bring your husband or your wife along with you, maybe, if it's an issue of a sin that you're dealing with. Yeah. You know, it could be also a marriage counseling issue, right? Or Mm-hmm. You would need to get it there. It depends. You just don't know on the front end when someone's struggling. You don't know the nature of it. So if someone comes to me, sometimes it'll be first them. I won't prevent them from coming to me until you know, because you don't even know what the nature of it is. And it really could be about something that. I mean, it's just man. I'm telling you, it's just so so. The, the, there's so many variations of issues. Let's let's say someone is struggling with uh, 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 a secret. Uh, Temptation of attraction to another man or woman. Well, that that can be a very dangerous thing to to confess with your husband or wife in the room for the first time. There, there needs to be an appropriate way to 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 figure out what's happening here and help that process move forward to bring that spouse into it. You see what I'm saying? So I think it's you know it depends. I mean, they may be coming to get counsel. I want to rec- I want to talk to my husband or wife about this. I need counsel about how to do it. And what are the mistakes I can make to do it? Because there are a lot of mistakes you can make. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and so that's just where we help each other. So there's not a kind of a, I wish it were the case that there was this nice, simple, manual, you know, flow chart, step one, two, three, like my science labs used to have. It's not a science, it's, it's a lot, it's wisdom, it's wisdom. the council of wisdom, yeah, scripture sure applying it in every situation individually, with some common principles. It's funny, I was wishing for a, a manual like that on our first topic today. <laughs> about ecclesial you know, ethics, yeah. yeah, ethics and helping people, and what's what's empowering, what's not, which what creates. I was, yeah. I was thinking the whole time, but we need some serious training on this, yeah. you know, as a church. You're right. All right, I'm ready to close this. Father, you are good and uh, powerful and majestic, and we do thank you for uh, these reminders of the gospel that we can see in so many ways how it gets float out the implications of it, um, the fact that we can come to you and, and to your body here on earth uh, and really confess uh, as the sinners that we are. And I do pray, Lord, that you would empower us, build us up individually in this room to be leaders, to be shepherd leaders, to uh, be bold and courageous in how we um, follow you and how we um, declare the truth of your gospel and, and become part of this community that is a, an outpost of your kingdom. Um, so we pray that, that this class would continue to have effect on us and, and would really have long-term uh, impact into this church and, uh, and to continue to build its, its roots deeply uh, into this community. Uh, we praise you and thank you. Continue to give us the wisdom in all these situations that we need. And may your spirit lead us, Lord. We need you. In Jesus' name. Amen.